0: All right. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Look at the hair today. The hair is in uh, is in full glory. Look at that hair. All right. What's going on, guys? Talk to me. Welcome to, I think this is Ask Me Anything number 10. So quite excited. Uh, I'll wait maybe a minute or two for people to start showing up. Remember, if you uh, wish to have your questions answered, please consider using the super chat uh, donor option. Uh, it's important to support the folks who are putting everything on the line. Uh, as we wait for people to come in, uh, went from 35% body fat to 15% at 38 after listening to your podcast on Joe Rogan last year. Thank you, you inspired me. That's fantastic. Got to hear it. Okay, we have our first donor, Bob the Terrible. Thank you so much. Could gender identity... Have evolved in humans by giving people an urge to conform to what is expected of their sex, thus making them more attractive. Uh, I mean, obviously we're a sexually reproducing species that comes in two phenotypes, male and female. Those definitions are not uh, debatable until you know three minutes ago. So it would make perfect sense that you know uh, your biological sex and your gender would be highly correlated now of course the standard story is your biological sex you know is one thing whereas your gender is another but of course these two things are in most cases highly correlated now yes there could be men who are more f- feminine there could be more women who are more masculine so that it's not a perfect correlation uh, but it is a, you know hardly a completely you know, distinct orthogonal uh, set of variables. But yes, of course, we're a sexually reproducing species. We've evolved to be attractive to the opposite sex in most instances, notwithstanding same-sex attractions. Uh, And therefore, yeah, of course, it makes sense that it would move in the way that you would expect it to. Thank you so much, Bob the Terrible. I love the... Your your avatar reminds me of... I don't know if you remember the song uh, from Enigma. uh, Sad. Uh, in in honor of sad uh, marquis de Sad s a d e this is where the term sadism comes from right because he was a a, a marquis is a is a you know royal uh, title he was a guy who was big on doing some torture and stuff and that's where the sadism story comes from so pretty cool avatar rather mysterious thank you so much bob for your uh, donation Moving on next person john ulrich i believe Yeah, I was just going to say, it says here, hey, God, a follow up from last week. I I do remember your name from last week. Uh, So let me read it. Hey, God, uh, a follow up from last week. I applied for the Dean position. Oh, right. After your advice on staying, leaving academia, time to be a honey badger. Go, Dean John, or hopefully, Dean John. Uh, I I hope that it works out. I hope that you do end up getting uh, the position and that from within academia, you'll be one of the rare uh courageous administrators who will hopefully effect some much needed change. By the way, yesterday I held a my first ever being the kind of very uh you know impulsive guy. I just kind of have fun. I just do things without too much uh you know uh strategizing. I went and just logged on and turned on the uh Twitter spaces which is not unlike this live stream, except that in this live stream, you know, you see me visually and you hear me and then all you can do is, you know, offer, uh, you know, comments on the the side and if you want me to read your question, then, you know, you can super chat me and so on. In in Twitter spaces, it's different in that it's kind of a common salon, but where it's all audio so people can ask to have the privileges to speak and so on. And uh, so we ended up spending close to 4 hours i think it was 3 hours and 30 minutes or i can't remember exactly how long it was it was unbelievable really a great thing i i'm so fortunate to be able to uh to have you know such incredibly intellectually curious and intellectually engaged people so thank you for that and maybe some of you who were there yesterday are here today so thank you oh we've got a a donor thank you so much Cameron Bell I have an extra seat for LAFC. For those of you who don't know, first of all, get your life in order. LAFC is Los Angeles football club. It's the second club uh, in the MLS to come in after the LA Galaxy. So now the, the derby match, the match between LA Galaxy and LAFC is called the El Trafico in in reference facetiously to the traffic and. Uh, California so let me just continue reading so I have an extra seat for LAFC waiting for you get your FBI friend to check me out pick a home game and let's go first round on you okay goddamn but knowing how expensive those concessionary stands are I think I might end up paying more for that beer that that of course I should offer you than maybe you paid for those seats but I think that sounds like an exciting plan by the way I did go to a game just before COVID uh, LAFC versus Inter-Miami. I think it was the inaugural season uh, of Inter-Miami. It might have even been their first game, if I'm not mistaken. And I was very excited because uh, uh, Vela, uh, who I don't know if he still plays for them. I think he still does, but I guess he's, he must be like 400 years old now. Uh, you know, he was putting on a show, quite quite a silky player, uh, Mexican left-footed player. So, yes, Definitely, we're on. All right, guys. What's happening? Only 102 people. By the way, for this, for this live stream, I announced it, I think it was Monday, so three, four days ago, precisely hoping that it will engender, you know, more people to come. By the way, yesterday for the Twitter spaces, the final number, if I remember, I'm going on memory, there were two thousand eight hundred and five people that tuned in which is unbelievable. Right now here, I think we've got 107 currently viewing. So let's get those numbers up. Gabriel Shipley, thank you so much for your donation. Very, very kind of you. Hey, God, you've talked to several objectivists such as Yaron Brook. Yes, I have. I think maybe twice on my show. Or, no, I think twice on his show and once on mine. What about object, object, objectivism do you find compelling, course this is the ayn rand philosophy what do you disagree with would you high would you highly suggest getting greg salmieri on your show would highly suggest getting greg salmieri um is is he the one who runs the the ayn rand institute or something i, I don't know who that person is uh there are many elements of objectivism that are nice by the way i i was at a oh i've got another person that just came in i'll try to uh answer his question next uh you know the idea of uh you know pursuing your interests is a good one although if i remember uh, objectivism clearly you know this idea of selfish interest of course and then of course that concept was then further confused when richard dawkins in a completely different context came out with the concept of the selfish gene the reality is that it's a misfortunate Appellation, because it's selfish only from the perspective of the gene level, right? But for example, many altruistic acts that we engage in might be considered selfish at what at one level of analysis, but they're actually perfectly they make perfect evolutionary and rational sense viewed from another perspective. So that which might be construed as selfish, when I jump into the river to save uh, a friend. That might be construed as I'm not pursuing my selfish interest, but then when you realize that evolutionary speaking, there are very clear reasons why I might engage in this altruistic act, then uh, it makes perfect sense. So maybe the main thing that I would criticize objectivism uh, would be that it wasn't necessarily rooted in an—I uh, mean, it was a, a philosoph- it was a philosophy that was well thought out, but it wasn't necessarily always grounded, you know, in the latest evolutionary uh you know understanding of human nature so that might be one element that i might incorporate into objectivism but overall many interesting points so thank you for that question Uh, edward van dyke uh of course very famously van dyke is a great defender for the dutch national team very stylish defender uh dear godfather the pronouns the flags and the forced language have made their way across the pond into the netherlands wish us luck well i wish you luck and were you so audacious and presumptuous as to think that somehow the netherlands would not fall prey to all the bullshit no this this nonsense these idea pathogens uh no no geographic boundary no no cultural boundaries they will go Wherever you allow them to proliferate, and so I'm hardly surprised that all of this nonsense has has hit the Netherlands. Uh, of course, Sweden one would have argued uh, might have been you know patient zero for some of these woke ideas, certainly the the social engineering programs related to you know creating a gender neutral society. the Swedes have been trying to do that for many many years now uh but yeah it doesn't surprise me that it's in the netherlands and i do wish you luck uh i think if i'm not mistaken i i can think of one or two i can't remember their their names off the top of my head but they've come across my emails at some point there is one or two dutch academics who are expressly anti-woke maybe not with huge profiles uh, that are trying to fight back against some of this nonsense. I think one of them might be at the Rotterdam Business School. I hope that I'm not I'm going on memory here. And so, uh, yeah, these bad ideas uh, are global. They're infecting every nook and cranny. But as I mentioned on many occasions, and certainly in yesterday's uh, Twitter spaces uh, session, uh, we will win the battle of ideas as long as everyone gets involved. All right, guys. Here listening, a New Yorker in Sweden. Okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, Oh, by the way, I want to show you something. You ready? You ready? Look what I got. The man, the original slayer of bullshit. Right here. Thomas Sowell, the king. Love the guy. Can't wait to read it. That's one. The one that I'm currently reading now, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last... uh, and the last uh, ask me anything, I'm still working through this book, uh, Eric Kandel's uh, In Search of Memory. Now that one, I'm loving it. I'm still loving it. I'm still enjoying it. The only problem with this book is that, well, not problem, but the, the challenge is that, you know, it's a, it, Eric Kandel is a Nobel Prize-winning uh, neuroscientist who won the Nobel Prize for studying the biological bases. Of of learning of memory, how you know how how does the brain actually, at approximate level at a reductionist level, you know retain memories, right? How does it do it? What wh- you know which molecules are involved, which enzymes, you know what are the neuroanatomical properties that allow memory to occur and so on. Implicit memory, explicit memory, and so on. Uh, as he goes through his autobiography, it can get a bit tedious in the sense that, you know, he he really needs to drill down to some of the details of his studies, uh, which of course are profoundly interesting. But, you know, once you've gone eight, nine pages into some very, very detailed neuronal stuff, uh, it can get uh, a bit, you know, uh, laborious. Not not that notwithstanding it's really really great books what are some other books i just got oh you ready check this out now the reason why i'm 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 always buying a million books but here are some of the latest ones and the reason why i went on this shopping spree is uh because i've got some professional development money you know every year professors get a bit of money to to spend on all sorts of things including buying books and so on and so i had some money left and so i just you know it was I was basically a kid in a candy store every day. I would get some new Amazon order at my house with two, three new books. So I've been really, really excited. Here are some of the ones I received yesterday. You ready? Oh, yes. Get ready. By the way, guys, you want me to answer questions? You got to use that super chat donation. Reciprocity. Don't be parasitic. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Look at it how to think like a Roman emperor, the Stoic philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Oh my goodness. As many of you know, in this book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, which is forthcoming in July, please go out and pre-order it now. Let me repeat. It's really, really important. If you're planning on buying my book, pre-ordering it really helps because then first week when the book is released all of the pre-orders get counted as part of the first week sales so then the book can enter into the best sellers list and then that becomes a cascade it becomes a domino effect it becomes an avalanche it allows the book to 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 hit the best sellers list so if uh you love my work if you want to support it if you for whatever reason don't wish to Mm -hmm donate into the tip jar here with some super chat donation. I hope you do. But if you can't, for whatever reason, then please go out and pre-order it. Well, the point I was making here is not just to engage in a plug for the book, but in this book, I get into all kinds of, um, you know stuff about the ancient greeks and you know their philosophy about the the good life you know probably no no group of philosophers have written more about it than than they did so i i became quite i mean i was already familiar with a lot of stuff but i i did a dig deep a deep dive into a lot of their stuff and so the more i read about you know seneca the elder and uh, epictetus and marcus aurelius you know the more i love these guys so then i found this book where you know he's going to get into the guy's uh biography i i love marcus aurelius i was asked recently at, on a show who's my favorite stoic and very hard to say but then i thought about it. i said you know i think it, it has to be marcus aurelius because not while he was the emperor of rome he was you know, doing all of his philosophizing and all of his reading. So, and he would actually get upset if he was, you know, interrupted to do the emperor stuff uh, when he was in deep thought. And I thought that's that's a cool guy, a guy who's got a job as emperor of Rome and who doesn't want to be disturbed because he's thinking and reading is a guy after my heart. So, this is one of the books I got. Okay, uh, here's another one by a classicist uh, out of England, Aristotle's way. Very, very cool. Oh, you're ready for this one? By the way, this guy I was bringing on my show, Sir Roger Scruton, he was coming and then unfortunately he passed away. So I'm very disappointed, although may he rest in peace, I was very disappointed that I couldn't get him on the show. Some of the books, there's a whole bunch of other ones there. If Depending on how our session goes, I'll try to uh, cover it cover some more. Okay, we've got Bentley. Thank you so much for your donation. Will AI become conscious since we taught it language? Example, if a deer could tell a hunter, don't shoot me, I have a family, we would give uh, deer human rights. Uh, I mean, that's a very big topic. I, I first, let me just kind of give you my my background in AI. I took, uh, so my, my undergrad is in mathematics and computer science. I took a uh, AI course, artificial intelligence course, I think it was 1985 with Monty Newborn, who was a professor at McGill University who was involved with Deep Blue, which was the early generations of algorithms that were seeking, to, AI algorithms that were seeking to uh, defeat uh, grandmaster uh, chess players. Uh, and in the course, I remember we had to use something called alpha-beta pruning it's a type of search pruning where you try to uh model how you would go about searching a decision tree in a game in order to be able to to you know to win at the game so i that was so this is way before ai became the hot thing that we now see i don't know what the trajectory is going to be i i somehow don't feel that it's as doomsday as you know the robots are going to take over uh I you know I I don't know I, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. But what I can tell you though is that the intrusion of these AI systems uh, into our lives are becoming quite sinister. Uh, so, for example, my daughter on her Snapchat now there is I don't know if some of you have seen this. There is now a a Chat GBT kind of avatar that can chat with you, and the only way you can take it out is if you pay some premium with Snapchat snapshot for it to be taken out. So, so there is the AI avatar waiting to interact with you. And if you start interacting with it, it actually has some really interesting conversations. My daughter started saying, you know, you know, I really love And you know, that's, oh, that's great. You know, Gad is known for, so then whatever, read something from Wikipedia or whatever. And then uh, I think my daughter said, you know, he's really beautiful. And then it kind of confused it it's, well. What do you mean by beautiful, uh, you know, this, whatever. It, but it was really interesting to see the interaction, how it was going. But then I told my daughter, please try not to uh, engage too much with this thing. We want it, just like Alexa, we want it out of the house. Thank you so much for that question. I'm not sure if I fully answered what you what you thought. I, but I certainly don't know uh, how this AI stuff is going to play, play out. Okay, we've got, uh, hold on a second, juggernaut assholes. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this properly. Just a donation. Thank you. You're lovely. That's very, very kind of you. I appreciate it. We got Nick K donation. Hi, sir. It's now the National Day of the King in the Netherlands. Long live the king. What are your thoughts on mark on monarchy? Do you think it's valuable for a country? What a great question. You know, so I, I don't necessarily know how the, the exact, political structure of the dutch monarchy is i i suspect it must be similar to the british one a constitutional monarchy i'm not sure so maybe i won't necessarily answer it in the dutch context but certainly we have being part of the commonwealth as canadians we're you know we we have our own you know monarchy to deal with i i often joke although maybe i'm not really fully joking i always say the whole purpose of having a monarchy is so that I can get knighted and get Sir before my name, Sir Professor Dr. Gatsad. And now, I don't know if you guys know this, under the ethos of egalitarianism, long ago, because Canadians are uniquely woke, uh, the Canadian uh politicians, I, I don't know exactly when this happened, but it's been for a while now, decided that Canadians cannot receive knighthoods from the Queen. Uh, because you know that creates you know div divisions across people. So way before it was cool to talk about all the equity bullshit, uh Canadians were already leading the charge. So that you know, if you're a a, a famous Canadian who's done wonderful things, you've been a philanthropic person, you've won the Nobel Prize. Sorry, you can't win a a Nobel Prize. Uh okay, but having said that. I'm torn uh, regarding the monarchy. On the one hand, I, I see it as a outright manifestation of a people's history. So, in that sense, there are some rituals, you know, and 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 pomp and so on that might be worth retaining, if only as part of your cultural heritage. On the other hand, I do despise the idea that these people are born into—I mean, literal. Privilege, Right. I mean, like you, you talk about, quote, white privilege, although, of course, monarchs don't need to only be white, but you're born into privilege. And so from that perspective, as someone who believes in personal agency and in, in, in working hard for what you attain, I don't like a, a bunch of parasites who sit around, you know, go like this all day and, you know, we bow and curtsy to them. So from that, if you like, deontological perspective, I don't like the idea of bowing to anyone. Uh, In Judaism, there's the old precept of there's only God to whom you bow and certainly never to a person. So from a Jewish perspective, the curtsying, so on, uh, would not be really well received. So um, I have mixed feelings, but I'm certainly not uh, a monarchist. Thank you so much, Nick Paul, Jack. Comes, I don't know if that was the first time you're you're here. Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much for your donation, really appreciate it. Clinger claim, we got Clinger claim. All right, hi dad, thoughts on the economy? Are we in the middle of a planned demolition to make way for green? whoa, uh, I don't know. I I don't like to kind of engage in a you know, uh, speculative. I, you know, one of the things I always tell people is I'm very, very uh, well calibrated about the things that I feel comfortable talking about, the things that I'm willing to debate. I know what I know and I I, I know what I don't know. Uh, what I can certainly say from a North American perspective, certainly from an American, and as you know, when United States sneezes, Canada catches a cold, as the saying goes, uh, you know, the gaslighting that is taking place uh, under the, the Biden administration, about you know uh, how they relabel everything. No, no, it's not inflation; it's transitory inflation. No, no, the unemployment rate is really low. Oh, well, yeah, it's really low because tons of people have decided to check out of the labor market. So, a lot of these numbers can be fudged. It does seem like, I mean, that we're not heading in the right direction. That's pretty much all that I could say about this. Of course, uh, Biden says that uh, the inflation that we face. Uh, you know, it's it's Putin's gas hike. Of course, uh, you don't have to be a fancy business school professor to know that uh, the best way to ensure that inflation happens is if you print unlimited money. That's how you are, are most directly likely to get inflation. And of course, uh, the Democrats in the United States and the liberals in Canada are all about expanding the government, therefore, to expand the government, you need more money. And, and off we go with the infinite loop. So I don't know how this is going to play out, but it certainly doesn't look good. I mean, I I just went this past weekend to a, you know, a a, a rather uh, average restaurant with the family. And I think we we got three pizzas. I I actually posted a picture of them uh, on my Twitter feed. Uh, We got three pizzas that probably you should expect they should cost you you know 12 bucks each pretty small pizzas probably one person could eat each of the pizzas and we left there having paid 95 dollars so from this anecdote i can tell you that uh i don't know how people who don't make a certain income are able to survive and yet here i am with the audacity of asking you hey you want to support good content please consider donating Thank you so much Klinger Kane I really appreciate it. Sharing for improvement. Thank you so much for your donation. Hi God been looking forward to the stream. Though school has kept me busy and didn't think of a question. Hope you do it frequently. Best life advice. Well that's a pretty big question. Uh best I mean well by the way of course if I can oh hold on if I can point to this book The Sad Truth About Happiness don't forget to go out and pre-order it. Uh, I have, you know, each of the chapters has, if you like, a different uh, life advice. Uh, so I'll mention maybe a few. Uh, in one of the early chapters of the book, I talk about the two decisions that are most likely to impart either a great amount of uh, happiness or a great amount of misery to your life. And that is, of course, choosing the right spouse to the extent that you could make an, an informed, intelligent, rational decision. You can't always predict what happens in the future, but there are certain ways by which you can approach that decision. So, choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession. Why? Very obvious, nothing mysterious about it. When I wake up in the morning, if the person that's sleeping next to me is one that I really like waking up next to, I'm on my way to being happy. If then I leave to my job, whatever that might be, and I'm fulfilled and happy and I have purpose and meaning in doing that job, that's great. And then if I return to the person that I like, well, then. I've had uninterrupted happiness. Now, that doesn't mean that life is not stressful and so on, but I do love my wife. She is my best friend. I do enjoy her company. I do love my profession, which includes, I mean, although I don't officially have to do this as part of being a professor, but the fact that I live an intellectual life where I'm constantly engaged in intellectual play, that's another thing that I talk about in the book, life as a playground, you know, you can do very serious things while always being playful, right? I mean, I talk in the book about how, you know, when I was going through the Lebanese Civil War, I was still playing. Uh, I tell, I, I cite a book uh, about how children in the concentration camps and the Holocaust still found a way to play. The movie that won the Academy Award, I think, in 1997, uh, Life is Beautiful, is about how a father, is trying to protect his son from the horrors of the concentration pl- uh, camps by playing so you know find the right life partner find the the job that makes you wake up every day saying oh my god so many exciting things are about to happen this day that doesn't mean that you don't get pissed and upset today i had to do a lot of you know try to wrap up my grading i really don't enjoy that sometimes students can regrettably get annoying they want to harass you for better grades and you're like oh god i hate this part of my job but overall do i love being a professor yes it's wonderful so i think that's the the best advice i can give you don't so here's the third piece of advice uh don't make decisions that can set you up for future regret right one of the the best uh, the, or the most likely ways by which you will regret things in the future is you you know you'll be 80 and you'll say you know i I hate the fact that I spent my life being an accountant. I became an accountant because my dad was an accountant and his dad was was an accountant and the market was uh amenable to me getting an accounting degree. It was a smart rational choice, but my god, I wasted my life. I always wanted to be an artist. I always wanted to be a pediatrician. So that there are some looming regrets that we can't fix unfortunately. And if, you know, you're 80 or 85 or 90 and you're sitting and regretting the trajectory that you've taken, well you only get one one kick at the can. So, hopefully, I've given you something to think about. Don't forget, tons of that kind of stuff in the in the sad truth about happiness. By the way, if I may, kind of speak about the book some more, a bit more. What I think the book does really well uh, is that it really weaves my personal anecdotes with the ancient wisdoms, you know, here comes Epictetus, here comes Seneca, here comes Aristotle, uh, and then supported by the latest science, the latest neuroscience, the latest science from, you know, the behavioral sciences, from psychology, from positive psychology. So it's really that marriage. I mean, sometimes a book can be full of, you know, academic stuff, but you don't get to know the author. But what I do is I, I have tons of personal stories. I call them the gadisms that are then uh, used to, to demonstrate certain principles. So I, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. So please consider pre-ordering it ASAP. All right, moving on to the next person. Let me just scroll down. Okay, one second. Sharing for improvement. Okay, I covered it. Uh, Peter Episcopo Bass. Hi, God. Thanks for being alive. What a lovely words. Thank you. Thank you so much. May the ride continue forever. Uh, thoughts on Christopher Hitchens. Were you a fan? Big time. Big time. As a matter of fact, when he passed away, I wrote a an article you know, honoring him uh, on my Psychology Today column, which I don't write much anymore for them. But from about 2008 to 2020, so that's about 12 years, I wrote over 300 articles uh, for Psychology Today that that, you know, had really given me at the time before there was, you know, YouTube and all that, uh, or before it was as big as it is now, uh, that was sort of the, some of the first places where I tried to engage the public and I had written an article about Christopher Hitchens. Uh, look, I didn't necessarily always agree with all of his, the substance of his positions, but what I admired about him is his personhood, right? I, I get the feeling I never had the pleasure of meeting him, uh, although you know many people in my intellectual circles knew him and were friends with him but i our paths never crossed uh which you know i very much regret i i think uh, i think you know we would we, we could have been uh f- friends i i feel uh i just love his honey badger attitude now th- this might surprise you and i think i might have mentioned that yesterday in the twitter uh spaces uh session if i'm I can't remember if I did or not, but I recently mentioned the fact that Christopher Hitchens sometimes made me wince at how frontal he was. And you know, I'm someone who, you know, if if you come after me or whatever, I'm I'm not uh, uh, tepid in going after you. Always, hopefully, with humor and decorum. But uh, you know, I'm not one who kind of wilts away and you know cries and sucks my thumb. And uh, even by my standards of you know the the Middle Eastern no nonsense approach. Uh, I found some of his positions to be yikes. So I remember one time, I think he had. A, I don't know if he was on. Actually, it might have been on, not Tucker. I can't remember who it was. It was some some you know you know uh, large platform, and it was just when Jerry Falwell, if some of you remember him, the um, uh, the, the super conservative kind of religious leader, he had just passed away. And it was just maybe the same day or the day after his passing. And he just was, you know, bad mouthing him in you know, very, very spicy ways. And I thought, Oh, you know, but you know, I thought to myself, shouldn't we be, you know, maybe granting a person you know, the courtesy of at least 24 hours while his body is still warm. And he, he certainly didn't think so. He thought he was a, a a Cretan and Hey, you know, good riddance. And he just went after him. So, I certainly respected the fact that he he did not play faux nice. I, I despise that. I am by temperament someone who's very warm and very down to earth and very friendly and so on. Uh, but it's not strategic. It's not careerist. It's completely authentic to a fault. So if I don't like you, you will probably know it very quickly. Uh, and if I do like you, I'm willing to you know go to bat for you till till for till the end of times uh that's just sort of my code of conduct and i get the feeling that christopher hitchens was very much that he was a man's man and so not only was he a phenomenal communicator you know great verbal fluidity mm-hmm. wonderful writer but just a guy that you thought you know if he if he's your friend he's going to bat for you and that's to me that's very honorable and i respect that so yes Christopher Hitchens is the man and he is missed. Thank you so much, Peter, for that wonderful question. Moving on. We've got invincible summer. Thank you so much for your contribution. Hi, God, longtime subscriber. Thank you. By the way, folks, this is, I'm not, this is not a plea for money. If you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, please go ahead and do so. It costs you nothing. Press the, the, the bell, you know, that alerts you. And I, cause you don't know how many people write to me and say, Hey, we never get any alerts from you. We thought that you were no longer doing any, 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 you weren't posting any content and so on. So it costs nothing. It builds a bigger platform. You help me spread good ideas. So please go ahead and subscribe to the channel and also to the podcast. If you can, leave a review on, on, uh, uh you know, iTunes or Apple, uh, for the podcast. So there you go. Thank you so much. Okay. So hi, God, long time subscriber. Thank you for your voice in these crazy times. Do you feel Fox can recover from the Tucker fiasco or have they lost cred? Boy, that's such a great question. We actually addressed it yesterday. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, in the Twitter spaces, my inaugural Twitter spaces chat, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really well, I did put out two clips on my uh, YouTube channel and podcast about Tucker, my friendship with him, and how many of my academic colleagues are coming hard after me because, you know, how dare I say something nice about Tucker? How dare I say that he's got good qualities, that he's gracious, that he was kind to my family? My God, what? I must be a, a monster for not seeing that he's completely immoral. So, nuance is lost on many of my academic friends. Uh, look, I think that. Fox is not going to suddenly implode. I I do I am a bit baffled by to the extent that it was a business decision. I you know as someone who teaches in a business school, boy, I would love to see the case analysis that led to you know the business analytics that made them decide. Yeah, that's the optimal decision. That's this isn't the best interest of our shareholders. Let's get rid of the guy who is the number one guy on on, on television by far. And, uh, you know, so so either they've got something on him that the rest of us don't know about uh, or I I really don't know. I'm I'm quite baffled. A whole bunch of people have proposed all sorts of theories, some of which are quite speculative as to why he left. But what I can tell you, here's what I can say. I don't I don't know what's going to happen to Fox. Uh, I I hope they they stick around because we certainly do need a diversity of approaches uh, in the news uh it would be quite tragic if you know the, the they were to somehow implode but what i can tell you is i'm not in the least bit worried about tucker's uh future trajectory uh, i just actually maybe half an hour before we we came on this live stream i took a screenshot of a clip he just posted uh, yesterday i think uh, a 2 minute clip on twitter and i think it the the tweet had gotten some like 50 i don't know 57 million impressions and the actual playing of the clip was at 17 million so he's going to only get bigger uh and good for him he's a he's a truly unique uh talent whether you like him or not whether you appreciate what he says or not he is charismatic he he does draw you in he's uh, uh you know uh, eminently watchable and uh yeah i think he's gonna do big things thank you so much Invisible, Invincible Summer. Appreciate it. Let's see if we've got anybody else. Uh, Yes, we do. We've got, oh, oh sharing. Oh, that one we got. Nick K, we got. Oh, no. Hold on a second. I, I missed a bunch, I think. Oh, yeah. Okay. Invincible Summer is done. We're moving on to sharing for improvement is back. Thank you, Gad. My pleasure. That was a great answer. Thank you. Your book sounds like the type. I love the weaving together. Going to pre-order now. Yes. Thank you so much. You know, I get so excited when... uh you know, I know that someone is going to soon be consuming my book because let, let me just mention this. There is there is something mystical about the process of creation, by the way, which is another thing I talk about in the book when I talk about try to find a career that provides you as much purpose and meaning as possible. I argue in my forthcoming book, this guy right here, this guy right here, I argue that there is nothing that will be more likely to offer you purpose and meaning uh, than careers that involve creation, whether you're a chef or an architect or in my case, an author and a professor that the fact that it required your efforts to take a dish that didn't exist. And then as a chef, I create this dish, which you hopefully will consume and love. Here is a bridge that didn't exist until, the combination of my art and science as an architect created that beautiful structure. Here is the opening of my laptop. Before I started working on this book, I opened the Word document. There is not a single letter, not a word, not a syllable. And then 12 months later, boom, I'm sending off the first draft to the publisher. And a few more months later, I get sharing for improvement saying, hey, I just pre-ordered it. I can't wait to read it. And then in, Three, four months from now, hopefully thousands of people will be sending me selfies of, you know, their copy of my book. They're reading it in Dubai and on the shores of Croatia and in Hong Kong. That's magical, right? Because, and and here, I'm not even, I'm not talking about the money, right? It's not that, oh, it's going to make me rich or so on. Uh, it's the fact that something that came out of the deep recesses of my mind is hopefully going to bring you know, uh, a moment of pleasure to someone else, intellectual pleasure in this case, what could be more beautiful? So to your earlier question, that's a life lesson I can offer you. Try to do something that can make you speak with uh, hopefully the passion that you're seeing me me speaking with. So thank you, sharing for improvement, uh, for ordering the book and for your contribution. Nick K is back. Thanks for your answer. My pleasure, sir. Is there an evolutionary psycholog- Is there evolutionary psychological evidence for the existence of the subconscious? Love your scientific enthusiasm. Thank you so much. And by the way, to speak to the earlier point, my enthusiasm comes well partly from just my personhood. I'm just a passionate person. I'm you know, always excited about things, but it also comes from the fact that I'm doing what I love. Right? I mean, the reality is, you know, the amount of time I'm going to spend on this live stream if i put it in terms of the cost benefits of the what i'm going to get in terms of monetary then it's a really suboptimal decision i mean uh, the hourly consulting rate that i charge when a company comes to see me is going to be a lot more than anything that i'm going to get here not that you shouldn't be donating with super chat please do so but uh i do it because i'm I, I, I love it. I mean, I, it, it's a form of intellectual improvisation, right? I don't know what the questions are. I'm standing in front of you, and I have to very, very quickly read a bunch of answer uh, questions that are in completely different areas, and hopefully offer some semblance of an answer that you know people will say, "Hey, okay, that's interesting. I, you know, I hadn't thought of it this way or whatever." That's very exciting. It's there's there's an element. That's mystical to that. It's it's the ultimate form, as I said, of orgiastic intellectual play. So uh, so yes, thank you for noticing that. I'm enthusiastic about about science, about intellect, about all these kinds of things. Uh, is there an evolutionary psychological evidence for the existence of the subconscious? Uh, I mean, I I haven't specifically read an evolutionary explanation for why the subconscious exists, but I can certainly offer some right here speculatively so what happens with the subconscious is that you you know your 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 mu- so for example i i remember once i was walking with uh my brother and he had just moved to a new area in laguna beach a place called top of the world over overlooking the ocean and as we were walking through this park at night i felt uneasy i felt as though we were being watched and then i realized that there were two young people i don't know maybe they were kissing or whatever in the corner which my my conscious awareness had not picked up but somehow there were some uh you know maybe auditory cues maybe there was movement that my brain had coded void of my having noticed it consciously and yet i felt uneasy so there are all sorts of arguments that one could make as to why uh the modality of your subconscious could have evolved, right? Because think about it. You have perceptual clutter in the world, right? You you can't be having your brain attending to every possible incoming stimulus across all of your senses because then it'll be a computational explosion. And so I suspect that there's some sort of computational argument for why we have both con- conscious and, and subconscious awareness. By the way, there are different ways to also look at this kind of dichotomy there is you know many of you know daniel kahneman with his system one and system two processing the idea is that some processing that we do is autonomic right it doesn't require our conscious awareness it just gets uh, instantiated whereas other forms of higher order cognition requires our you know uh conscious uh you know, input. And so so I think that there are many compelling arguments as to why there should be an evolutionary-based argument for why the subconscious exists. Thank you for that fantastic question. By the way, just the answer that I just gave now, it's off the top of my head. I have to take all of this knowledge that I have and see if I can fit it within a schema of your question. And I think that's just, it's fun. It's great. All right, let's go on. Who else we got? We got a bunch of new people coming in. Please bear with me. I'm just going down the list. Uh, Comlin, thank you so much for your contribution. Hi, God. I hope you are well. I'm doing well. Do you do you do your students know that you are famous? How do they react? How do they respond? Also, are you well known in Montreal? <laughs> thank you. Uh, actually, they do know uh many of them uh uh you know will will ask for selfies at the end of the class or ask for a signature of the books or uh one student this year brought her mother to my course i mean she asked for permission and the mother was a huge fan and uh you know they're lovely people uh so yes i think many many people do know uh you know of my uh greater reach uh it's it's lovely because know it's just nice to see how they react they're full of love and gratitude and affection and so on so yeah it's all good uh do do people recognize me in montreal uh if i can say so without being arrogant they recognize me i could as i think i mentioned yesterday in in the twitter spaces session i could be walking in a semi-deserted beach in bahamas and some local Bahamian comes up to me and says, oh my God, I know, I, I think I've seen you on Joe Rogan, right? So uh, it's unbelievable. It really is beautiful. Uh, I've been fortunate enough, knock on wood, that at least in my personal interactions with people, I've only had a, one single instance where it was a bad interaction where actually someone threatened me in quite a sinister way. I was walking with my son. But otherwise, there'd been thousands and thousands. I mean, on any given day, you know, many people come up to me. uh, It's always positive. It's always polite. It's always sweet, full of love and so on. So it's just, it's amazing. I mean, anybody who tells you, oh, I I don't like when people come up," to bullshit. I mean, you put yourself in the public eye, at least revel in the fact that people appreciate what you do. What could be more beautiful? So uh, I'd like to think that I'm always, you know, Gracious with people when they approach me. Sometimes I worry about if they want to take a picture or something. And I'm with my family. I try to keep my family always out of this. Uh, so that's maybe the only time that I feel a bit stressed when somebody approaches me. If I'm with my family, I don't want their pictures out there. Uh, they didn't choose this life, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful thing to be appreciated by people, and I'm very grateful for it. All right, thank you so much for your question. Moving on, uh, we got a bunch of people here just bear with me i'm just going down the list as i see them uh okay guys uh okay hold on so please please don't get impatient with me i'm just working through them as i scroll down uh Klein is back one more question what would john lennon think of today's politics particularly the left uh you know uh the mere thought of hearing the words john lennon trigger uh, an uh, uh, a reaction in me. I can't stand his music. I can't stand the way he was. I I can't stand imagine, you know, the let's hug. So I can't. I don't know exactly how. We, maybe he would even think, as a super tree hugger, he would think that the left has lost its way. But uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of John Lennon in any possible way. Thank you for that question, Alan bebel box in 2010 i was walking in ottawa and justin trudeau ended up next to me at a crossing light i did not slap him i have never been a- <laughs> i've never been able to forgive myself for that how can i forgive myself well let me ask you this and i hate to ask you this i'm assuming you're canadian did you vote for the liberal party in each of the three elections since he's been uh been prime minister since 2015 if yes I fear that there is no road to redemption. There is no repentance that you can engage in that can justify such a profoundly idiotic thing. Uh, But not slapping him. You know what? I don't condone violence unless it's absolutely necessary. So I forgive you, my child. Go with Gad. Go with Gad, I said. Go with Gad. Thank you so much, Alan. Much appreciated. Moikus. thank you for your time. Thank you for your donation, I really appreciate it. K1F8, is it better that our elites be intelligent and crazy or stupid and sane? (laughs) I feel we've got the worst of both right now. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Look, in an ideal world, you want them to both be intelligent and sane. But to the point of being crazy, so let's take Donald Trump. Uh, If you think of uh, the the head of China, uh, shizhen chi is that how you pronounce it and you think about putin uh one argument for why they did not do all their uh saber saber rattling and invading ukraine and so on is because he had a bit of the crazy thing right here's here's the red button eeny meeny miny mo. catch a tiger by the toe. Do you remember that uh scene in uh Pulp Fiction. So that element even whether you truly are erratic and insane or not has an evolutionary advantage vis-a-vis your adversaries because they don't know what to expect but when you are idiotic, lobotomized woke, decrepit and an avocado for a brain, that's probably not the good uh, mix. There you have it. Thank you so much for that question. Andy G. Thank you so much. Looking at honey badgers who succumb to emotionally driven position, COVID, Chomsky, TDS, yes, Trump derangement syndrome. Are hubristic vices a survival mechanism as a release from rational thinking they show in many other areas? Well, I I don't know if I'm going to answer your question exactly. on uh, hit, hit it on the nail. But to your point about hubris. So there is a book that I cite in uh, The Parasitic Mind in this book, in Chapter Seven, where the chapter is about how to seek truth, and I talk about the theory of argumentation. This is a theory by uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. Hugo Mercier recently came on my show. I highly recommend you watch our chat. and And in the uh, in the book, what they argue is that the the human capacity to reason did not evolve to seek truth, but rather to argue. That, that you are right, right? Which which is quite disheartening because if you believe that there's a deontological mechanism to pursue and defend truth, then it doesn't feel good to know that for most people, they don't care about some absolute truth, capital T. And so to your point about hubristic lack of humility, most people are never going to admit they're wrong. Most people are never going to correct their positions once they are strongly held. And that's the challenge because i mean that's the whole point of in the parasitic mind where you, you know you have all kinds of people who you would otherwise think are smart uh who end up being completely parasitized by bullshit because they're never willing to autocorrect. So there you have it thank you so much for your question uh paul are we i hope i haven't missed anybody no i don't think so paul jack your thoughts on space exploration and elon musk well elon musk i've said uh I don't know about what the ultimate benefits of space exploration will be, whether it's just a a vanity pursuit or whether there are concrete downstream effects, but to the extent that the human mind should be you know unbound by its creative pursuits, then fine great uh in terms of elon musk i think and i've I've actually released a clip where I've said that of all of his great entrepreneurial endeavors that he's been involved in, none of them will have him uh remembered. By his in history books than his, uh, you know, Twitter purchase, because what that has done is if even for only a moment, it has uh leveled the playing field, right? Uh, uh you know, uh, I know for a fact, if I just take my own personal account, uh, the, the, the amount to which I was, you know, being restricted in my ability to communicate, you know, my words being seen by others was completely lifted when Elon Musk came about. So, I think he's a guy who's a real honey badger. He's irreverent to all the things that most people who are who have a herd mindset care about. He does his thing, and um, so yeah. So I I admire uh, his unwillingness to succumb to the orthodoxy. And and as I said in in one of the clips that I did on him, uh, him overpaying Twitter. I think it was forty four billion dollars, if I'm not mistaken. That he overpaid for the price of Twitter. From an evolutionary perspective, it makes perfect sense. It's a costly signal. For a signal to be an honest signal, it has to have a wasteful component. So from an evolutionary perspective, it makes perfect sense that he would have overpaid for the privilege of trying to, uh, you know, create a a better playing field. So there you have it on Elon. Alex Daviduki, Dave Dave Duki, or I don't don't know. Hi, God. Thanks for being so great thank you so much. Uh yes, the unconscious seems to keep us safe if we listen, if we if we listen to it. The gift of fear author covered this. Oh, nice. You know, I don't know much about that book, but the only time I was ever exposed to that guy, who I think is some big security guy, uh is on a chat that he held on Megan Kelly's show. And that's when I first uh, heard about the the book, The Gift of Fear. And so thank you for reminding me of it. I I think that's the guy you're talking about. Uh, So maybe I should, uh, if I have any money left in my professional development money, I maybe need to get that book. So yeah, thank you for that. Spock, uh, let me just go here. Again, please bear with me. I'm just going through them uh, in order. Spock 2024, don't tell me, don't tell them I was here. (laughs) <laughs> okay, mom's the word. Uh, Thank you for your contribution. Comlin uh, is back. Is there, I think you were earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Uh By the way, am I cutting the hair, making it more tight for uh the Greg Gutfeld show, which I'll be appearing on this Monday, the return on Greg Gutfeld show. I know some of you are going to write, oh, I've boycotted Fox. I don't want to watch Fox and Stucker. Come on. You need to come and see the Godfather. I think I'm going to just let it, I'm going to keep it growing. What do you think? I think that's how I'm going to go. All right. Is there an evolutionary psychology reason for teenagers feeling the need to rebel against their parents? Oh boy, what a fantastic question. I actually addressed this in a sad truth clip I did. I can't remember exactly what, maybe a year ago. And I called it the age of obnoxiousness or something. And it, the age of obnoxiousness so it's going to speak to your question about the the dynamics between teenagers and parents. In 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 Jewish Arabic, there is a an expression which I'll say it in in in, in my native tongue and then I'll translate. It's sin el shlut Sin el Sin means the age, the age of. Sin el shl'ut is a kind of Hebrew Arabic word that refers to obnoxiousness, and so. When you see a teenager acting in kind of the typical teenage obnoxious way, we would say, "Oh my God, look at that kid! He's entered Sinishalut, the age of obnoxiousness." And so, I, to your point about an evolutionary explanation, I had argued in this in this uh, sad truth clip that maybe the the fact that teenagers are so profound. I mean, I I was saying it slightly facetiously, but I actually think that there is real merit to what I'm saying, that one of the ways by which you can create a a distance between you and your kids, in addition to what you're suggesting, which is that they try to position themselves as distinctly different from you, right? Mom and dad like this kind of music. It sucks. I want to like something else. But the fact that they become uniquely obnoxious at that age it makes it easier for there to be a separation, the natural separation that happens when they start hanging around more with their kids. Imagine how much we'd all be faithfully heartbroken if we could never deal with the fact that our children are going to slightly develop into their own you know, people with their own interests, with their own independence. Well, boy, does nature make, make it easier for parents to deal with that. If, my God, are they obnoxious when they are teenagers. You might almost say, I can't wait for you to leave the house, right? I don't think that would happen in my case. I'm very much of a papa bear kind of father. But uh, so I think that there are some very interesting, both, I mean, speculative arguments that we can propose, but also there is a, a field of study that looks at you know evolutionary-based dynamics between adolescents and parents. So there's a, a, a whole area that you could look at there. Thank you very much for that question. Moving on to the next person, Corey Cassell. Thank you for your contribution. Hi, Dr. Sad. Sorry to bring up a bad topic, but awareness should be raised about Haiti, in my humble opinion. Officials are begging for foreign interventions, intervention thoughts. Uh, I don't know what the latest stuff is. Forgive me if something's happened in the last couple of days, but there is a perpetual either looming crisis or ongoing crisis in Haiti. Uh, so I don't know what to say about that. Here is what I will say, and I don't mean to sound in the least bit cold-hearted or callous. I'm a very giving person. I can't stand to see a person who's homeless, suffering, or an animal being abused. So I'm very sentimental, very empathetic, and so on but when is when does the contract between one society to another end in terms of the flow of aid that you should give? Is it a hundred years is it two hundred years is it six thousand years is it sixty five million years When does it end so my point is that uh It is perfectly reasonable for countries to have as part of their outreach programs, as part of their foreign policy, to say, look, you know, we are fortunate for reasons X, Y, Z, and therefore let's go around helping others. But I also wonder whether there is an expiration date on that. I I, I hope that I haven't offended you with that statement, but I I do think that uh, there has to be an expiration date uh, so that people within particular culture can fight their own battles to build the institutions and the societies that they need to build so that they can handle the problems that arise in their life right i mean in their lives we left lebanon with nothing we escaped under imminent threat of execution right and yet we came to canada we didn't take money from the government all we needed is a place to welcome us which i'll be forever grateful for canada having done that but then we had dignity. We had we stood tall and we made something of ourselves. So yes, there are times when we all need help and that's fine. And we should help others who are in need if we can do it. But I don't think that um, philanthropy and foreign aid should be an infinite thing. So I know that that's not what you're trying to get at, but I thought that I would just mention that. Thank you so much for your uh, question and contribution. Colin is back. Have you read Thomas Sowell? Of course. What are your thoughts on him? I just posted a, a, at the start of today's live stream, I posted one of the books I just bought, uh, a biography by Jason Riley on Thomas Sowell. He's the OG. He's the king of the bullshit slayers. I love him. And one of the things that uh, I regret to this day is that I haven't been able to ever uh, get him on the show. I don't think he really does many shows. A couple of years ago, I came very close to getting him on. It, it didn't end up happening. Uh, but yeah, I, I love Thomas Sowell completely, fully. Uh, entry, rear, re, REQRD. Thank you so much for your contribution. Defenestration and the casting out of the indoctrination multitudes in universities and K-12. It's that, that, a lot of words here. Your thoughts, please. Defenestration and the casting out of the indoctrination multitudes in universities and great 12 your thoughts please i'm my apologies i i make every effort to try to answer question i'm not sure i understand what this means i'm i'm presuming you mean how young kids and young adults are being indoctrinated maybe that's what you mean in which case my thoughts are of course things that i've been talking about for well over two decades which have led to me writing this book the parasitic mind Uh, one of the reasons why i think uh if i may speak about why students might appreciate me uh, why they appreciate me is because i really do teach them how to think i don't i don't i never walk into class and you know criticize this political party and say "If, if you don't love this group then you're well, are you crazy? If you, I, I never do that. And that, actually, that's one of the reasons why I I don't really get nearly into the the trouble that you might otherwise think I should get into as being arguably the most by far outspoken academic, you know, ever in this space. Uh, and yet uh, I go on because I I'm very very disciplined about separating my job and role as a professor in the classroom from my other engagements. Now that doesn't mean that I won't talk about important issues as they relate uh to to my to whatever I'm teaching. So if I'm teaching a course on, you know, evolutionary psychology and I want to talk about evolved sex differences between the two sexes, of course I'm going to talk about that as it relates to other culture war issues. But I don't I'm I'm not in the least bit dogmatic in the classroom. I come in, I provide the science, I teach people how to think. And uh, we end up having great conversations. Nobody feels, uh, you know, uh, uncomfortable and so on. Uh, So to your point, if I understand your question, regrettably, most professors don't abide by that ethos. Most professors or teachers at, at a younger age think that this is an opportunity for me to have access to young minds so that I can teach them what to think. And that's grotesque. In my view, that's a violation of, you know, if, if the Hippocratic Oath is the code by which, you know, physicians should behave towards their patients, well, the the professorial or the teaching code should be to never teach people, you know, they should believe ABC, but to simply teach them, here are the tools, here are the epistemology by which you can adjudicate across different decisions and I'm going to offer you those tools and then may God be with you. So there you have it. All right, moving on, guys, moving on. Randy Wallen, thank you so much for your uh, uh, contribution. Balboa Island, what's your connection? I lived there for 20 plus years, love the place. Are you kidding me? I I am Balboa Island. I, I mean, for those of you who don't know Balboa Island is this magical place, this wormhole in the universe where you go over this bridge from the Pacific Coast Highway in Southern California and Newport Beach, to be more specific. And you go to... So I've been going to Balboa Island since 1985. Every summer, I spend tons of time in Balboa Island. Uh, So I'm deeply, deeply connected to Balboa Island and I would love nothing more, Randy, than to uh, end up living on Balboa Island. There are other places in Newport Beach that I even prefer more than Balboa Island. I'll keep them secret because uh, I wouldn't want the wrong person, the one person in the world who doesn't like me to ever track me down. But uh, yes, Newport Beach is really my my spot. Uh, I had a brother who lived there for many years. Uh, I lived in Newport Beach myself when I was a professor at UC Irvine. So Balboa Island it's part of my, it's running through my veins. Thank you so much for that uh, contribution. Uh, and by the way, uh, consider yourself envied because uh, I don't envy any person except those who live in Newport Beach. So you are envied, sir. All right, going on. Uh, oh my God, we got a whole bunch of people. I'll get through all of you. Please bear with me. Michael Marmorstein Ste- or Steen. Oh, I think you were here last time. So thank you so much for coming back. Hi, God. I think I remember you saying you studied university mathematics. Did you have any favorite math classes experiences? Oh, I love that question. Yes. Uh, I, well, I loved all, all I mean, there, there's something really unique about the level, the profundity, the depth at which uh, you tackle things when you're studying mathematics and certainly theoretical computer science. uh, uh the more theoretical the courses were the more i was interested in them uh maybe because i have a an, an ability to think in an abstract way uh I, I i you know you know i love pure mathematics and number theory precisely because it's arguably well it's the purest form of math and and the the most uh, uh it, some could argue that maybe the hardest uh, math I, I didn't officially take a, a strictly a number theory course but I took a bunch of courses that were uh, very, very technical, very, very rigorous and theoretical. The the course that I loved the most, uh, officially it wasn't a math course, although it, it really is a math course. It was under the rubric of computer science. Theoretical computer science is a course on formal languages where we learned about you know, NP-complete problems, NP-hard problems. This is a taxonomy for how you... Uh, you quantify uh, the hardness of a, a of a problem in, in terms of uh, you know it can be solved in polynomial time. So for lo- some of you, you may not know what I'm talking about. But it, in other words, it's a so uh, you know uh, related to that idea is Kurt uh, Godel's incompleteness theorem. I love that stuff that I covered in in mathematics. I love the stuff with Turing machines. Alan Turing, who was a mathematician. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you read the book formal languages I think it's uh Ullman and Hopcroft I can't believe I remember this this is from 1986 I think uh you open that book it's in a completely different language I mean never mind mathematical notations it's I mean I I took those courses I still have the book I look at it I see my handwriting in the margins and I look at it and I'm like, oh my God the stuff that I've studied so that probably was the most intellectually orgiastically orgasmic course that I took because it was such a different way of thinking so that that I think I would place my uh my vote for that course of many many great ones that I took so thank you very much for that question great question jay just pre-ordered yes guys the sad truth about happiness eight rules eight secrets for leading the good life, please pre-order it. Please make that commitment. It really, really, really helps in terms of the spread of the book because it enters then the bestsellers list. So please do so. Thank you so much, Jay, for pre-ordering it. Speaking of hubris, we neglects we neglect we neglect the benefits of A/B testing. Why no testing in societal areas, for example, energy, homelessness, etc. I'm not exactly following the gist of your question. If if what you mean, if I can blow it up a bit, your question, if what you mean is that many policy decisions that are stemming from the social sciences are not evidence-based, you're exactly right. I think that's the gist of your question. Uh, I think because it's very easy for certainly politicians or public policymakers to be parasitized by, you know, the prism of their ideology, right? So that they they no longer use evidence based, you know, mechanisms epistemology to to get at what is the optimal policy. So let me give you an example. Uh, and actually, I was thinking of writing a an opinion piece for the New York Post on this topic, which, by the way, can be blown up into an entire book. I argue generally that. One of the problems with the left is that many of their policies are rooted in a perfectly erroneous view of human nature. So, for example, the soft on crime policies uh, that the left seems to prefer. So, to your point about you know societal areas, right, uh, is perfectly rooted in complete bullshit. Okay. So the idea is we need to be softer on criminals because a criminal doesn't have personal agency to the extent that he commits a crime it must be because society has turned him into uh you know the person that he is and there, because we are all bo- born empty slates with beautiful souls and it's only the the nefarious and then fill in the 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 culprit right it's only White man, it's only toxic masculinity, it's only colonialism, whatever it is that you know, it's uh, that has made him who he is. And therefore, what is the point of doubly punishing him? He's already been punished by society. That's why he robbed you and mugged you, and maybe raped you. And now you're going to punish him and throw away the key. Only conservative hacks would think that. And therefore, we need to be more caring. We need to be more empathetic. What's the point of having long sentences? What's the point of the death penalty? It's immoral. Well, if we find your DNA on the dead bodies of five children because you raped them, uh, I don't think that the innocence argument applies. So I'm perfectly willing to kill a recidivist, uh, you know, sadist uh Pedophile. All right. But the left has a completely utopian view of human nature that is perfectly decoupled from the evidence, hence the parasitic mind. And therefore, you end up with all sorts of insane policies that you go, who could think that? It makes no sense. It is perfectly decoupled from science, from reality, yeah, right? You are six foot four, you weigh 260 pounds. You've competed until the age of 22 as a man. The next day you say, I self declare as a woman because we all know that being a woman is simply a, a feeling. It's an aura. It's got nothing to do with chromosomes. It's got nothing to do with morphological differences, anatomical differences, physiological differences, behavioral differences, hormonal differences. That's all nonsense. Therefore, it's a feeling. Therefore, trans women are women, period. Therefore, what kind of bigot could ever think that it's not okay for a six foot eight guy who weighs 300 pounds to smash a five foot two woman? They're both women, even though he's got a nine inch penis. He's just a woman, right? Well, the fact that you're able to take that position in a sane world suggests that you're certainly not being true to science, let alone to reality, because you've been fully parasitized. And so, yeah, this is a problem. That's why I wrote The Parasitic Mind. May we be inoculated against all of these mind parasites. Thank you so much for your question. Alex Daviduki is back. Oh, thank you so much for returning. Thank you for your contribution. 20 years ago was robbed twice in the first week of being in Rio de Janeiro. Afterwards, I discovered I could sense being watched when muggers eye me ready to strike. Sorry, gift of fear, more patterns, less subconscious. Yes, I know. I hear you. Uh, I get it. Uh, uh, by the way, that's I don't know if that term comes from him, but I, I know that term from having received death threats and the cops talking to me and so on. The the term I think that people use is situational awareness, right? I mean, I'm I'm always amazed when I see some young woman walking down, walking at night, uh, you know, uh, attached to her cell phone, thinking, hello, are you looking around? I mean, not that you want to live your life with your cortisol levels through the roof, worrying that someone is going to jump you from top of the tree. Have some situational awareness. So I'm with you. I get it. I understand what you're saying. Let me just make sure that I haven't missed anybody here, and then I'll keep continuing going down. Okay, Jay, I've covered. Alex, I've covered going on. Okay, we've got your ir- Dsnid. Ior- Would you bet at even odds that the race IQ gap is entirely environmental or partially genetic if partial What percentage do you think is most likely 50% genetic, 50% environmental, 20, 80, 80, 20? Okay. Well, this is, by the way, exactly what behavioral geneticists do, right? Behavioral geneticists typically use the twin paradigm, which, by the way, I recently published a paper using a twins registry to decouple the effect of the environment versus the genes or in our case, we were more specifically interested in looking at the extent of the effects of the genes on decision-making. And so we used a twins registry from uh, St. Thomas Hospital in the UK. Uh, you can go check it. I think the paper was published in 2020. So if you go to my Google Scholar thing, you you can find that a very, very cool paper. Uh, the genesis of that paper is from many years ago. It took us a while to publish it, but I'm really glad that we did. Uh, so I... On, it's it's hard to say, and, and by the way, I, I mentioned this yesterday in my uh, Twitter um, uh, spaces uh, session, there is probably no more forbidden thorny topic. Well, already talking about IQ and intelligence as an innate ability, that will label you as a eugenicist Nazi. Arguing for race differences in, in, in intelligence, boy, you're looking for trouble. There's there's nothing you can study that could be more thorny. Uh, conceptually speaking, so I can't give you the numbers, you know, 50 this, 50 that. I mean, although there, there are estimates, for, for example, in terms of what percentage of uh, individual differences in IQ are due to heritability. So, Certainly that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no conceptual reason why there shouldn't be select- selection pressures, selective pressures from mm-hmm. an evolutionary perspective for the evolution of all sorts of mental uh, traits. So just like we can argue, uh, here is the evolutionary reason why these people have evolved the capacity to uh, synthesize uh, lactose, whereas these people have not, right? And we can use an evolutionary argument. It's actually called gene culture coevolution modeling uh, for the evolution of the gene that either protects against lactose intolerance or not. Uh, we can use evolutionary argument to explain why people have evolved different skin pigmentation. So, so conceptually speaking, there is no reason why it is impossible to imagine that there would be evolved race differences. Uh, and and I mentioned this yesterday. That's exactly the position that Philip Rushton took. Uh, for those of you who don't know him, he's now passed away. He's arguably, maybe, the most despised psychologist of the past fifty years, because you know a large part of his career was studying. If, if this mm-hmm. is what interests you, uh, this is you know he studied IQ differences across races, uh, and you know he argued, no, I, I don't have a racist bone in my body. I'm just following the science. There's every reason to think that. You know, different groups would have evolved to be of different, uh, you know, abilities. And I just want to pursue the science wherever it might take me. Others have said, "No, th- there's no way you could pursue something as thorny as that if you're not inherently a racist." Uh, I don't know whether he was or not. I've known people who knew him, and I've asked him that question. I remember famously, I I had dinner with somebody at the University of Arizona. I had gone there to give a talk, well, actually a few talks, and uh, and even that person who knew him well personally didn't have an exact position as to whether there was anything racist about him or not so that's all i could say about this uh i hope that i've answered your question but in any case uh you can check out philip rushton's work some people despise him other people think that he was a great psychologist and then you can hopefully get the answer to your question moving on to the next person do we have anybody else okay we have kunav putur i hope i didn't destroy your name Kunaf Putur, P-U-T-H-U-R, have you thought about making content in Arabic too? I can see you having a big following among free thinkers in the Arab world. Shukran uh, Habibi, I don't know if you're, you're, I mean, your name doesn't sound Arabic. Uh, I have thought of it. It's difficult to, you know, do, I mean, you guys have to remember that everything that I do that, that you guys are probably familiar with, I do that outside of my very intense and very high stress job as a professor, right? Writing papers and writing books and supervising students and teaching students and sitting on administrative committees and serving on editorial boards of journals and applying for grants and on and on and on. Most professors, if they did nothing but be a professor, it would be a very, uh, you know, intense job. And yet I do a million other things, right? So I'm always working in some form or other. Uh, so yes, in a, in a, in a world where I can have more time to myself, I'd love to do exactly what you're saying, which by the way, again, not to bring it back to pecuniary issues, which is a fancy word for money. You know, if I had the financial support of my fans in a way that would allow me to free my time, uh, I would love nothing more than to do things like that setting up online lectures all the time. Uh, some of them might be behind subscription walls others might be freely available uh you know creating all sorts of I mean I already create tons of content but most of it is always done freely and I just appeal to people's sense of fairness and say hey if you consume my stuff don't you think you can you know support me in some small way but I always feel uncomfortable doing that because it seems as though you know you're please please sir can I have some food uh but the reality is you know I, I spent 4 hours yesterday on such a chat I'm spending 2 hours today I don't know how much I'll make couple of 100 bucks that's not really what i charge when you hire me for a consultant so yes i would love to make stuff available in other languages i would love to do everything in my power to increase the, the 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 spread of good ideas uh but i'm limited by time and it's it it sometimes amazes me that i can do all the things that i do given the amount of constraints and responsibilities i have thank you for that question again people if you wish to support my work you can do so in a million different ways some of it involve money. Other ways, they don't. But please, whatever you do, consider supporting me. All right, moving on. We've got Eeyore Sneed is back. Would you lie to a Nazi in World War II, asking if you had seen any Jews around? If yes, then what's the difference between that and lying at academia to achieve political goals? Lying to beat enemies is okay, no? Uh, yeah, you raise a great question. It's one that I've addressed on many, many occasions when I draw a distinction between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics—it's uh, the perfect example of consequentialism to say it's perfectly okay to lie when it when the outcome of lying is protecting individuals from being killed by other nasty individuals. That's the beautiful. That's the perfect uh, example to give when you are uh, demonstrating the value of a consequentialist uh, ethical system to stay on the. The Nazi uh, example, I've also given the following example as a manifestation of deontological ethics. When the uh, Mossad, this is the, the Israeli secret service, found Adolf Eichmann, one of the butchers, the worst butchers of the Nazi regime in Argentina, they faced two possible situations. They could put a bullet in his head and hence render swift justice and go out into the darkness of the night without anybody knowing what just happened. Or they could stick to their deontological ethics of presuming that everyone deserves a day in court, even someone who is as grotesquely guilty and evil as Adolf Eichmann. So at great personal and diplomatic cost, they decided to stick to their deontological ethics Whisk him away to Israel where he was tried and then executed. So, uh, there are many, many contexts, many more contexts where a consequentialist ethics, ethical system makes perfect sense. But when it, if you say that I am an academic whose sole purpose is to be an adherent pursuer and defender of the truth, that has to be the the, the deontological process. That's the whole point behind the parasitic mind. Thank you for that question. Uh, Moving on to Maui Swift or Mai Mao Swift. Just a heartbeat. Thank you so much. And a very nice donation. You're very sweet. Thank you so much. Heart right back at you. Uh, Just a guy. Okay. Just a guy giving a nice donation. You're lovely. Thank you so much. Uh, Moving on. We've got Sean Key. Oh, yeah. hope i didn't miss anybody sean key it's a big number the donation but it could be uh zimbabwe dollars and therefore one cent i'm kidding i don't know what it is but but based on the number it looks very impressive thank you so much what is the most efficient way i can build capital to free myself from my country and attend a (laughs) a lecture in your class what a lovely question uh well I don't know where you live and I don't know how much money you would need. Uh, I mean, you know, you might be, uh, in New York, which wouldn't take much to come and see me, or you might be in Sydney, Australia, which would take a bit more money to come and see me, but, uh, it's never too late. Uh, I, um, you know, I, I get tons of emails from lovely people who say, what can I do to, you know, to meet you, to, to come to your class. And, uh, just send me an email make your way to montreal and boom here you go or hopefully i don't know where you are in the world uh i would love nothing more if again i could free some of my time to go on a book tour this is something that someone asked me yesterday do would i ever envision doing you know a world tour the way you know jordan peterson does and so on the main reason why i don't i don't do those is because i'm always constrained by my schedule, right? I, I can't go on a six-week world tour when I've got students to answer to, administrators to answer to, journal reviews to to submit, grants to apply for, papers to finish, and so on. Uh, and so, again, from the perspective of what I would like to do in my future trajectory, I, I've always thought that I would want to be a, and I, I do want to be a professor forever, but to the extent that it also binds me in ways that don't allow me to pursue other things it's a bit of a uh, of a bummer uh not that i'm very grateful for the 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 professorship that i that i do have it's a privilege to be able to teach young minds how to think as i said earlier so to answer your question uh if i ever i mean assuming you don't live in you know kamachatka uh, the only reason why i know kamachatka for if people are wondering is because it is a territory in risk if you play risk by the way i used to be a big risk champion i challenge anybody to take me on in risk i should have been a general in another life in any case uh, uh you know hopefully i we our paths can cross at some public event i will be speaking i'll tell you this um uh, it's not yet officially announced, but I will be speaking at the Commonwealth Club, which apparently is a super prestigious forum. You know, heads of states and prime ministers and presidents and so on are invited. I didn't even know that. I When, when I told someone in passing, they're like, what? You've been invited to the Commonwealth Club. You, you've arrived. I'm like, oh, cool. So I'll be speaking. And that's in San Francisco. So I look forward to having several homeless people sling some of their feces at me, maybe get attacked by a few other homeless people who are high on fentanyl, maybe cross your fingers, get gang raped by a few others, and then I will make my way to uh, to the Commonwealth. So maybe I will see you there if you are in the area. This will be happening in early August. All right, moving on, moving on. Uh, hold on a second. Okay, thank you. We got Corey Cassell. If thank you so much for your contribution. If I can run experiments indicating entropy trends one billion out of one billion times in uncounted variations, what's the scientific explanation for amino acids combining into? ever more complex structures, and eventually DNA. What the hell? I'm not sure I understand that question, but I'm assuming that what you mean is if you replay the tape of the evolution of life, could you get to the same movie that we have today? I'm guessing that that's what you mean. And if that's what you mean, I'm guessing that what you're saying is that Evolution is a hoax. There must be some intelligent designer that created this because statistically it is impossible for us to have created life out of nothing those those kinds of arguments if that's what you're intimating, I'm not sure because otherwise I, I don't think I understood your question. Those kinds of arguments have been addressed by endless people, so I won't rehash them here. I'm sorry, I hope I haven't left you dissatisfied with my answer, but uh. Evolution operates over an astoundingly long, distal time, right? This this is what Richard Dawkins talked about middle world, right? It's very hard for the human mind to understand things at the nano level. It's very hard for the human mind to understand things at the cosmological level. We exist in middle world. So we're able to intuitively understand things that happen at the scale at which we navigate through our daily reality. And when you try to infer evolutionary mechanisms that have taken billions of years to happen, a lot of people say, statistically, that's impossible. Well, it isn't. It has happened. We know exactly how it happened. And there is really very little to debate. By the way, I don't mean that that it's settled science. And if you prove it wrong, we don't have to revise our opinions. No, I don't mean that at all. It's not, I'm not being dogmatic but certainly there is an astounding amount of evidence for the evolution of life in exactly the way that we uh, expect it to via an evolutionary process. There you have it. Okay, moving on. Uh, we've got uh, Furious J. Dear Dr. Sad. besides your good friend Joe Rogan, who are some of your favorite stand-up comedians, dead or alive? Cheers from Ottawa. What a fantastic question. See, this is, this is one of the reasons why I love doing this. Right, I can go from a question about the evolution of uh, uh, you, you know, amino acids, the previous question, it felt as though it was an intelligent design question, and now I come to who are your favorite comics? That's why this is fun. Open yourself up to the world and good things will happen. Uh, I'm going to say a living uh, uh, comics, I'll, I'll restrict it to that, got to be Dave Chappelle. It's got to be Dave Chappelle because, well, for many reasons, first of all, to truly be funny, you have to be very intelligent. That's one of the reasons why many women will say, oh, I really am looking for a funny uh, guy. Because that's a proxy measure of intelligence. They're effectively saying, I want an intelligent guy. And of course, intelligent correlates with all sorts of you know, mating relevant attributes. So, you know, it's very, very hard for you to be a, a very witty, a very sarcastic, a very uh, f- funny uh, guy if you're dull. Dull, I mean, in terms of your intellectual acuity. So uh, Dave Chappelle is really understands human dynamics. I always joke that, you know, I think he's smarter than a lot of my colleagues. He understands human nature. He understands sex differences. He understands bullshit. the proliferation of bullshit and he finds a way to hone in on that stuff using you know very unique delivery right i mean if you took dave chappelle removed all of his unique sass his timing and so on his rhythm he wouldn't be as funny right so it's a it's a it's a unique cocktail of things that you know allows me to be you know running on the treadmill and listening to him and, and being entertained by him Uh, There are many other guys that I don't find in the least bit funny. Probably there is no one less funny in terms of his stand-up routine than Jerry Seinfeld. I loved the show because, again, it was a a brilliant analysis of many fundamental features of human nature in a very unique and fun way. So the show was brilliant. I think it will be I'm not sure you could ever come up with another show quite as unique as Seinfeld but if many of you remember in the early uh, instantiation of Seinfeld within the show they'd always they'd always uh, break out into him doing a monologue as part of his stand up routine and I found it awkward, dull, annoying, obnoxious uh you know, just completely lacking in intelligence. What's up with insurance companies? Fuck off. Okay. I mean, th- there's, there's just nothing funny about it. There's not, there's nothing spicy about it. It's, 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 it's annoying. It's, or and, as we say, to use the word I used earlier, it's sh- luth. It's obnoxious. So I don't know if Jerry Seinfeld will ever hear this great show, very unfunny comedian, Dave Chappelle, top guy. There you have it. Uh, I used to like that uh, Italian guy when he first came out, Sebastian, whatever. Now I'm finding it's just too much. He's his, 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 his become like a supernormal stimulus, to use an evolutionary term. It's too much. Uh, you know, me, me. I, the, the Italian thing is getting tired. There you have it. Okay, Lord's Need. If lying is a more effective strategy to win, then won't the activist professors have an advantage? Isn't it isn't better to temporarily lie yourself, beat your enemies, and save the things you value? Well, you you raise a good point in the following sense. Uh, why is it that we have such an uncanny ability to engage in self-deception? So, so to your point, even before worrying about lying to others, because I've always wondered how could some of these people believe that? the bullshit that they believe in how, i mean how could you how could you espouse these pictures i mean how do you have doctor before your name how did you get through a phd it, it it's it's unthinkable and then of course then i turned to robert trivers who is a truly brilliant evolutionary biologist one of the arguably one of the biggest biologists since i mean literally since darwin uh who's still alive, by the way. I tried to get him on the show. He almost came on the show. He suffers from some real serious mental health issues. Our our communique completely broke down. It's very regrettable, but that's a different story. Robert Trivers has a theory on the evolutionary roots of self-deception, whereby he argues that there is an evolutionary arms race when you and I are chatting. If I'm trying to manipulate you for my interests, I might engage in duplicity to... To bring you to whatever I want. Now you, on the other hand, you you evolve the evolutionary capacity to choose in me, and hence that's why it's an evolutionary arms race. As I try to. Uh, you know, manipulate you, you're trying to, to pick up by the tonality of my voice, by a micro cue in my face, whether I'm being duplicitous or not. Now imagine how much easier it is for me to lie to you as you're sitting there trying to gauge whether I am being truthful or not, if I can shut off those micro cues of deception because I've actually convinced myself of the lie, which by the way, speaks to going back to Seinfeld. I actually discussed this in my first book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, where I talk about an episode on Seinfeld where uh, George is trying to teach Jerry how to be a better liar. And as he's about to leave the house, he tells him, remember, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. And I said, aha, that's right there is the evolution of self-deception of Robert Trivers. Okay, so so I think you're right. Uh, Professors end up first deceiving themselves so that they can spread the idea pathogens to the greater world. Right on. Omega Alpha Tau thank you for your contribution maybe let's go back hold on a second, maybe that was uh i mean i i know how to say it, di- diogen that uh, that di- di- diogenes i don't know how to pronounce his name the the famous uh ancient greek i think sorry maybe that was that uh, di- diogenes Sometimes being multilingual Arabic, Hebrew, English, French makes you uh, forget how to pronounce a name in a particular way. I remember I used to say uh, hyperbole, uh, meaning hyperbole, right? Or, for example, I say a priori. And then people will correct me and say a priori. Well, no, I speak French fluently. That's not how you say it. But anyway, so maybe that was the Eugène Incarnate, and you got on his private turf. How do you know that homeless man wasn't our <laughs> modern day? I, I'm, I'm assuming you're you're ref. I mean, yes, I, I get the ancient Greek reference, but you're 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 referencing the fact that the homeless person will be flinging um, uh, his feces at me. Uh, yes, you got me. Point taken. Maybe I am uh, violating his space, and therefore it makes perfect sense that he. Uh, injects me with the needle filled with uh, fentanyl. Then he flings the feces at me. And then for good measure, he rapes me. Because, you know, white man evil. All right. I'm not sure what else I could say about that. I, I think you were being um, jocular. David Thompson, thank mm-hmm. you so much for your contribution. Can you explain some of the techniques or approaches you employ to teach your students how to think? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I mean, that's that, that'll take a while. Uh, what I basically do is uh, so I, I think here's how I'm going to answer this but, but there there are many different pedagogical approaches I can use. One that I use throughout all of my courses undergrad, MSc MBA, PhD is I've historically always had a research project that the students have to do and actually this semester was one of the only times when I didn't do that because I had so many students I guess uh, a victim of my popularity Uh that I could no longer run those projects uh, just because there wouldn't be enough time to have the end-of-semester presentations. So I ended up doing another assignment. But historically, for 99% of the nearly 30 years that I've been teaching, what I do is I ask students to identify a research question, posit a set of hypotheses that flow from that research question, develop the uh, data collection uh, procedure that would allow you to collect the relevant data use this statistical inferencing the data analysis that would allow me to adjudicate whether we refute the hypotheses or not arrive at some conclusions conduct the literature review so i make all students e- even at the undergraduate level do what amounts to be a thesis but in a group typically and they And it's a very, very difficult project. I mean, and it requires a tremendous amount of my uh, supervision outside of the classroom because it it really takes a lot of my mentorship and supervision to get them to learn how to structure problems. You know, how do I formulate this problem? What would be the, the data that I would have to collect to definitively test this hypothesis property? So that's how I'm teaching them how to, think critically i'm teaching them how to look at the world and identify an interesting research problem i'm then asking them to think about how you develop a very clean and tight hypothesis that is empirically falsifiable then i'm teaching them well what would be the data that you'd have to collect that would allow you to completely test your hypothesis so what should you now how should you analyze that data and each of the projects that they come up with require completely different data analytic approaches you know, in one case you have to use a stepwise regression, in another case you have to use a discriminant analysis, in another case you have to use uh, some ANOVAs and so on and so forth. For those of you who are statistically inclined, but I do that precisely because at the end of the process, it's like night and day. I, it's like you've taken a baby that's uh, uh, two days old, and in thirteen weeks, I turned them into, you know, a top athlete that's how quickly their abilities to, to learn how to think uh, is developed. So that's the approach that I use. And uh, if I may say, it's been you know very successful. All right, let's keep those donations going. Let's keep it going. Nikki K, crazy question. Thank you for coming back. Do you have an evolutionary explanation for why people devote their lives to learning a board game? Chess grandmasters, do you play? Well, wow, that's a great question. Uh, so there, uh, in the... I think it's called *The Mating Mind*. It's a book by uh, a good friend of mine, and a very accomplished evolutionary psychologist named Jeffrey Miller. He talks about why do people spend an inordinate amount of time mastering certain skills? Why do you become a virtuoso violinist? Or to your point, why do you? Uh, now, the easy answer is just love the game; it brings me joy. But you're asking a deep. Suggest that you you read that book because I think it would. Uh, quench uh, your thirst regarding you know why do people spend an what appears to be an inordinate amount of time mastering skills that otherwise don't seem to be adaptive but there there are interesting adaptive arguments that you can offer so read the mating mind by jeffrey miller uh do i play you know i well i mentioned earlier that uh I took an artificial intelligence course with one of the professors who was involved with Deep Blue, which was, as I mentioned earlier, the, the I think the IBM-led project for developing an AI system to beat grandmasters in chess. Uh, but earlier, when I was a kid, uh, I started playing and it appealed to me. I liked it, but there was also an impatience in me. So, and I'm not exactly, and it's hardly that I'm, you know, an ADHD person, right? I'm very cerebral, but I really do have both the kind of brawn and 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 bookish, you know, I I both want to play soccer and I also want to be immersed in books. And somehow chess didn't satisfy either. I mean, it was competitive and therefore you could say, okay, it, it appeals to my competitive athletic uh. You know, personhood. Uh, It's cerebral, yes, but there were always other things that won with me. There were too many books that I wanted to read. And in a world of fixed pies, uh, do I want to spend the next four hours playing a a game of chess or do I want to read a really, you know, cool book? And so it always lost to other activities that were more important to me. So, uh, in the abstract it is certainly a game that I you would think that I would enjoy and I certainly enjoy the artificial intelligence discussions revolving around how algorithms were developed to beat human grandmaster players uh, but I probably the last time that I played a full game to completion it probably would not be an exaggeration to say, i must have been 13 so uh so yeah so i don't play it much but i truly can appreciate that it can be an, an addictive pursuit thank you for that let's keep going okay here's i answered nick k hey, we're coming we've got two we got bartolome Van murillo hey how you doing i remember i always see you in these uh chats hi how do how do many high IQ people lack common sense? Come on, man. That's 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 the whole book. It's called the parasitic mind. Uh, I, I don't mean to blow off your question, but that's all of my interventions are about answering that question. But thank you very much, uh, Don Jones. Hi, God. Admire your courage. Question: Is there a genetic etiology to homosexuality or is that lgbt propaganda does it serve any evolutionary purpose if socially accepted does it indicate the decline of a civilization so i'll answer the part about whether there is an evolutionary explanation to homosexuality uh, i've addressed this on in previous settings but i'm, I'm happy to do it again Uh, There isn't a singular answer that is fully satisfying in the sense of, you know, uh, are there universal mating preferences that we have uncovered? The answer is unequivocally yes. Are there clear evolutionary reasons why we would have evolved those mating preferences? It is an unequivocal yes. And so that one, you could take it to the bank. Okay. The, The explanation that I'm going to offer you now about the evolutionary roots of uh, homosexuality and why it doesn't get selected out of, you know, the the repertoire of human uh, preferences, uh, the evidence is not is not very good, but this is the best one we have. Now, I think that the evidence is not good because it wasn't tested, because I think that the, the theory behind it makes sense to me. So let, without further ado, let me mention what it is. There's a phenomenon in evolutionary uh, theory called inclusive fitness. In- inclusive fitness that doesn't mean fitness in the sense I'm fit to go to the gym. It means your rep- your currency in terms of being able to propagate your genes. Well, inclusive fitness has multiple elements. There is what's called reproductive direct fitness, right? So if I produce 10 kids, I am more f- fit in, a- in the currency of propagating my genes than if I am celibate and I never produced, right? Okay excuse me but it turns out of course that direct reproductive fitness is only one way by which i can propagate my genes indirect fitness and hence this is why it's inclusive fitness indirect fitness is the mechanism by which through kin selection i could still be propagating my genes right so to the extent that my children on average share half their genes with me and their mother shares their other the other half to the extent that I am twenty five percent linked to my grandparents or twenty five percent linked to my nephews and nieces and so on and so forth. This is called R, the 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 coefficient of genetic relatedness. So an identical twin would be coefficient would be one. We share the same genes. A, a stranger would be zero. A a dizygotic twin, a fraternal twin, would be no different than a sibling. Be So the idea is that if I, for example, jump into the river and in the to try to save three of my children and I die, but they are saved, it makes evolutionary sense for that kin based altruistic act to have evolved because at the gene level, the fact that I died, but I saved a packet of three people, each of which are 0.5 connected to me, makes sense, right? Now, why am I saying all this? To the extent that even if i am exclusively homosexual so let's say for there's less sexual fluidity in male homosexuals than there is in female homosexuality M- meaning that some women will experiment and have sex with other women even though they're not exclusively uh, same sex attracted whereas that's less likely to be the case for uh, homosexual males so let's suppose i never Have sex with a woman, therefore, I know that I'm a quote Darwinian dead end from a reproduction perspective. I can still augment my inclusive fitness by investing heavily in my kin. In other words, it need not be a dead end, a Darwinian dead end, if I decide that I'm not going to procreate. And so the argument is that since that, I mean, that is true, that. That that's demonstrably true. So then the way they, they try to test this is that they've taken, for example, gay uncles and then straight uncles and said, okay, well, let's look at the patterns of investments in both groups toward their nieces and nephews. And then we should see that the gay uncles are on average likely to invest more in their kin's uh at at the level, say, of nieces and nephews. And the results haven't uh, supported that. And to my earlier point, the reason why, so I think that it's not that the theoretical mechanism is faulty. I think it's that the, the way by which the researchers have gone about testing it in terms of the patterns of investment might not have been the best way to do so. So remains to be seen, but that's the best argument for the maintenance of uh, homosexual preferences within the human context god damn if that explanation of itself is not worth your tuition fee for a whole year i don't know what is I mean seriously i mean I'm, I'm forgive me i'm tooting my horn here but that's the kind of stuff you get in a live stream people if you love this stuff please consider donating uh we might end it soon although i i just love doing this but let me see if i didn't didn't cover anybody. Okay. I did cover Don uh Jones. And then we've got, I think we're on our last one so far. Uh so we might end it if you want after this, almost two hours. This is Furious J. You're back. Oh, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for the, your donation. Is Shawarma in Montreal better <laughs> or different than the Lebanon? And of course, how does Dr. Goodlooks order his? Oh my I love these. I, I think you were the the person who asked me what my favorite comedian were—that's actually one of the things that's really fun about doing these uh, these live streams. Because yes, I, I'm I'm perfectly happy to answer all these you know uh, fancy academic questions, scientific questions. That's great, I love that. But it's also just fun t- to receive just you know random personal questions. Uh, is Shawarma better than Lebanon? So in, uh, I I have to kind of put back my I have to go back into my memory to when I was eight, nine, 10, and 11 before, you know, before the civil war broke out and uh, try to remember how shawarma was there, where did I eat it and so on. So I don't have a distinct memory of a singular place. Uh, So it's hard to compare. I'm almost willing to bet that uh, because there is such a huge Lebanese uh, population in Montreal for many, many years now, uh, I'm almost willing to bet that it's indistinguishable from anything that I would have eaten growing up in Lebanon. So it's—I don't think that one is better than the other. What I can tell you, since you're asking me, oh, well, okay, let me answer. How do I order it? I order it all dressed with extra tomb, and uh, tomb is the the uh, the garlic sauce that come. I I like to bathe. I, I like to lather my body with tomb, which is not great from a caloric intake perspective but that's that's the most notable thing about the unique way that i order shawarma which is with a lot of tomb. uh but to the point of lebanese cuisine in general i i mean i think it's great that lebanese cuisine has become you know uh, a very popular thing amongst uh you know people in general but what i regret is that just in the same way that people think, oh, you know, uh, Italian food, it's spaghetti and pizza, or, you know, Chinese food, it's uh, lo mein and chow mein. Uh, So there there are these exemplars of a particular cuisine that becomes kind of the, the end all of the cuisine, whereas Lebanese cooking is astoundingly more diversified than that which the average person who goes to a shawarma stand will ever learn. And of course, growing up in a Lebanese, I mean, don't forget that obviously my, my background is Lebanese, but also I I married a Lebanese woman, and so, you know, I've been eating Lebanese food for 58 years. Uh, I, I wish that people would take the time to actually go, if you can't become friends with a Lebanese family who will, you know, invite you for home cooked meals, then at least go to a restaurant that doesn't just peddle the standard, you know, shish falafel, hummus and it's hummus don't hit me with hummus and hummus and all that bullshit pronounce the goddamn word properly it's hummus okay hummus so uh you know it's usually people have you know uh tabouleh, hummus or falafel or shawarma or shistawuk that's it that's where lebanese cooking ends nothing could be further from the truth the the, the richness of Lebanese cooking is astounding. So I would encourage you to find some Lebanese restaurant, homemade cooking, and just go through the menu. It is breathtaking. And I don't say this because I'm Lebanese. Uh, I truly think that there is no food that's better than Lebanese. I mean, now, if you ask me, forget about Lebanese food, what's your second favorite genre? Overwhelmingly Asian. Anything Asian. Thai, Thai. I'm all over it. Japanese, I'm all over it. Chinese, love it. Singaporean, uh, I've never been to Singapore and so on, but you know Singaporean noodles, for example, love it. Malaysian food with the coconut uh, uh, milk and so on, love it. So there's something that really appeals to my gustatory preferences when it comes to Asian food. So if we were to leave out Lebanese food, Asian is the way to go for me. Uh, although... Not sure that eating a lot of Chinese food is good for the size 33 waist. And so I try to avoid it as much as possible. All right. Next, do we have any more? Here we go. Oh, yeah. We've got so, okay. We got a whole bunch of new people. Hey, keep going. Keep going. No problem. AD, thank you for your contribution. They say so- societal beauty standards are socially constructed. Obviously, there is dimorphic differences in reactions to pheromone using fMRI scans in the thalamus. How much is biological versus societal? Fantastic question. Well, we know, uh, I, and actually, when I uh, uh, lecture about this exact issue, the nature versus nurture of uh, beauty, I describe studies, the most famous of which is uh, Langlois et al. Langlois, L A N. Or, oh, I'm, I shouldn't say it the French way, even though it's a French name. I should say Langlois, L A N G L. Ois Langlois. Uh, anyways, Langlois et al. I think did a the classic study where they demonstrated that children who are too young to have been socialized, by definition, in other words, they're they're at the developmental stage where they 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 haven't yet developed the cognitive machinery to be able to be socialized. That's how you you rule out the socialization argument. They already exhibit the perceptual aesthetic preference towards facially symmetric faces. Therefore, they are responding in an innate manner. Nobody has taught them that preference. Uh, so that's usually the way you use developmental psychology to demonstrate that a, a preference is innate. That what That's one of several ways. Uh, so there are both societal nurture and universal elements to beauty. Facial symmetry would be a, 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 an evolved preference. On the other hand, for example, there's the Wada'abi people, uh, which are a people that span, I think, about 18 different countries in, in Africa. Uh, they have a, I think it's called the Jiruwal Festival, where it is the men that beautify themselves with makeup and so on. So I use that as an example of how while in most cases it's it's women that wear cosmetics to actually accentuate certain cues of sexual arousal, right? The reddening of the, of the cheeks, the reddening of the lips. It mimics uh, the reddening in, during sexual arousal. But there are some cultures where it is the men that beautify themselves through cosmetics. So you're exactly right. There are both societal elements to beauty that are culturally defined. For example, neck elongation, that you see in some South uh, uh, Far East culture. I think it's in mainly in Vietnam, if I'm not mistaken, uh, if I remember correctly, where you, where women put an ever increasing number of uh, rings around their necks to elongate their necks so much so that after a while they lose the, the, their, their neck muscles atrophy that if they remove their, those rings, their, their, their heads would kind of blob down. Uh Well, we would look at that and say, what the hell is that? How is that beautiful? Or you've got what's called lip plating in Africa, where you put a a, a huge lip around your lips or ear plating. We would think that that's grotesque, right? Like a pendulous lower lip just dangling. That seems grotesque. They think it's very beautiful. So there are elements that are culturally bound. But that said, it is absolutely untrue that all beauty standards are culturally constrained. Bullshit. There is a whole bunch of beauty standards that are absolutely universal. Unblemished skin is more beautiful than blemished skin. Uh, big eyes are typically, there are certain types of eye signatures that are desired everywhere. Uh, uh, certain testosterone and estrogen marker. And men and women are desired throughout the world. Facial symmetry, as I said, is desired. Luxuriant uh, hair in women is desired. That's why there are religious edicts to hide the hair. That's why when women get older, they typically cut their hair because the quality of that signal degrades as you get older. Your hair becomes more brittle, more split ends, more dry, and therefore you try to reduce the. The size of that degrading uh, uh, signal, the quality, the, the degrading quality of that signal. So, there are both societal elements to beauty and universal ones. Thank you for that great question, Yosef, uh, It sounds like it's a Hungarian name, Antal Dobra. Dear, Do- thank you for your contribution, dear Doctor Sad. I'm struggling with a chronic disease, and at university, I feel I cannot muster enough inner strength to continue what is your advice well first i'm sorry to hear about your struggles i hope it's nothing too serious and i could only hope that you will achieve a speedy and full recovery it's hard for me to weigh in when i don't know what those struggles are it could be that you're suffering from anxiety or it could be god forbid uh you know you have uh, metastasized leukemia so i i can't i, I don't want to speculate so i don't want to give you uh advice that doesn't at all fit the seriousness of your situation, all I can say is uh you're here right now you're hopefully enjoying this uh situation as long I, I I'm gonna say a cliche, but that which doesn't kill you hopefully only makes you stronger, which is just a way of stating that resilience is important it's or to use a term that was popularized by a fellow Lebanese author. Nassim Talib, when he wrote the book Anti-Fragility, as long as something doesn't kill you, then there are lessons that can be reaped from it. It can make you stronger. So I I wish you the the best of luck. I wish you strength. Immerse yourself in meaningful things. Ignore negativity, people who might bring you down. Uh, Pursue intellectual challenges. And hopefully one day you will come back and say, i have kicked my problem and in some very very small part uh i appreciated your uh motivating words you speaking to me so i wish you the best of luck sir uh i don't like i, I don't like to read something like that it, it 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 makes me feel helpless that i can't offer any any better uh solutions for you uh ns Thank you so much for your contribution. Is Ukraine another proxy war? How do you see geopolitics? Geopolitics deception. How do you see the future if China becomes the world's arbiter of right and wrong? Uh, it, it would be speculative for me to to talk about Ukraine. I, I can, yeah, I'm I'm of different minds about this whole thing, so I don't I don't feel comfortable just speculating as though I'm an authority on this on this topic. Uh, but I could <laughs> offer a an answer regarding China. I don't think that's a good thing. If China becomes the arbiter of right and wrong, uh, I think it's time to pack it in. Uh, not because it, it's not an indictment indictment of Chinese people, of course. Not that I should even have to say that. Uh, it's an indictment of any authoritarian regime. right? The Chinese government, CCP, is not exactly in line with all of the enlightened deontological principles that we hold dear in a free and enlightened society. And so it does worry me greatly the extent to which they are flexing their muscle around the world. And uh I don't think that's a good thing. And so from that perspective, if we link it back, say, to Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden, who are, you know, appeasers, who are castrated, I don't think that when you have a a big elephant like China flexing its muscles, that you need to be, I'm okay, you're okay. Let's not say where the COVID virus came from, because, you know, that would be racist. It would increase the marginalization of Asian people in North America. No. Uh, The Chinese uh, are responsible for what happened in COVID. Maybe it wasn't malicious. Maybe it wasn't willful. Uh, it amazes me that people have around the world have experienced the hardships that they have, including death. Millions of people have died. And uh, China has not had to be held accountable one iota for it. So it's never a good idea when there is a complete decoupling between cause and effect. And uh, certainly the Chinese government seems to have gotten away with it. Uh, So yes, this is a worrisome thing you you I can't remember who said I don't know if, I don't think it was Winston churchill said I don't know or maybe it was Eisenhower I can't remember who said you know uh, speak softly but carry a big stick or something of that effect. I think that's really the right way to lead the uh, a, a diplomatic uh, outlook don't don't be hubristic don't be bombastic don't you know maybe Donald Trump was too much of that who maybe. Or maybe it was good that he seemed like he was unstable because it scares these nasty folks. Nasty meaning authoritarian regimes. But I think that, I mean, that's why Israel survives in a very, very, very dangerous neighborhood, right? Uh, They'd love to have peace, but if you come for us, uh, it's going to be painful. And that's, that's the reality of the world, right? The world is not paved with... Uh, kumbaya let's hold hands it's paved with endless rivers of bloodshed because humans are tribal humans want to get what's what the other tribe over there has it might be their water it might be their gas it might be their livestock it might be their beautiful women and the only thing that stops one tribe from getting the other one is that the other tribe has men that are not willing to let go of their children and women and resources and animals and so on. And that keeps people in check. And then once we don't agree, we go to war and we fight. So this idea of appeasement and kumbaya and only love and so on, that's not how the world works. And that's why I despise castrated leaders. There you have it. Okay, let's keep going. Is Ukraine another proxy war? Okay, i answer that one. Less truth, more... Okay, hold on a second. I don't want to miss anybody Okay, less truth, no, less trust, more truth. What is your favorite fast food restaurant? Hands down, hands down, not even close. And I haven't gone in, well, it was before COVID since I've last gone. So definitely over three years. Maybe not, this is why you now have all that beautiful facial structure that's chiseled, that used to be hidden under layers of fat because of my former gluttony. But my favorite restaurant has always been, the Canadians will appreciate my answer. The rest of you won't. Too bad for you because you are not experiencing one of the great wonders of Western civilization. Harvey's is the greatest fast food restaurant in the world. As a matter of fact, uh, when I f- one of my earliest memories in Canada was the first time. It's an episodic memory. It is etched. In my brain, the first time that I bit into a Harvey's burger, they're charred, char broiled burgers. So they're juicy. They're not like the McDonald's kind of synthetic processed. So it's like the best burgers you could imagine if you were at a barbecue pit master's house. I throw in some mustard, extra pickles, and I go to town. Maybe I'll violate my diet and go tonight. We'll see. Getting hungry. So to answer your question, Harvey's Burgers, hands down. Bradley Knees, thank you so much for your contribution. Gad, since you were an athlete, what do you think of Aaron Rodgers going to the Jets? Me as a Packer fan say good riddance. He was a bad team leader. What do you think about the effect of a great player and a bad teammate? Yes. Fantastic question. I'll first address it in the Aaron Rodgers case uh i did feel last year that he his aura seemed wrong right he's whining and complaining and all this kind of stuff so yes there, there there's an expression in arabic which some of you may have heard me mention before if you if you follow me religiously uh it's one it's an expression that i used in describing the lack of shame that fauci exhibited in being in his position for, I think he's been serving in that position since 1812. I think he's he's been in that position since well before the U.S. Civil War. And there's an expression in Arabic when someone, it's it's enough of someone, you say, which means his smell is coming out. That's, that's when someone has overextended their welcome, right? And so I think in Aaron Rodgers' case, When it came to the Green Bay Packers, his smell was coming out. It was time for them to split. So I think that's a good move for everybody. Maybe this will invigorate him to, you know, to to do new great things in a new setting, just like Tom Brady did when he went to Tampa Bay and he won a Super Bowl with them. So maybe that would be good for him. Uh, He is getting old. So maybe it's time for Green Bay to have a, a new team. But to your general question, what happens when you have a great player who, who has a bad attitude, who's a bad teammate? None better example than pretty boy Ronaldo. For those of you who follow soccer, perfectly manicured, metrosexual Ronaldo is arguably a dreadful teammate. Just his, his, his arrogance, his the way if you don't give him the ball where he wants it, he starts flipping out. Com- compare him to Messi, who not only is by far not even close the greatest player ever, greatest player that could ever be, but the way he carries himself, dignified, classy. One of the reasons why they won the World Cup in 2022, and you can't imagine how happy I was from a cosmic justice perspective that they that, that Messi finally won the World Cup. If you polled every one of the players on the team, they would all tell you the same thing. And actually, I've heard them say it. I am willing to die for Messi. I'm willing. And the way they played, what was genius about the coach in forming this team. Argentina's had many great teams in the past, but they didn't win because they were completely disjointed, because they didn't build the team around. A guy like Messi has to have a bunch, and especially now he's 35, you need warriors that are willing to go to the Hell and back, and getting you the ball, and you saw that throughout his team. And so, compare Messi, where people are saying, I'm willing to lay my life on the line. I mean, literally, they use those words, I'm willing to die. You can go and watch Martinez, the goalie, say, "I, I and along with others were willing to die for Messi, and that came through. So, yes, I think you can get away with some petulance and obnoxiousness when you're a great player. But if you can have both, if you can both be a great player and a a loved individual, then then you're Lionel Messi. There you have it. All right, moving on. My goodness, what questions. Unbelievable. We've got, wow, what a name. Bulmeteus Steel Dragon. Thank you for your contribution. Would you talk to Destiny? Who? Uh, you mean Destiny as a concept? No. Oh, he is the only sane progressive YouTuber in my home. Oh, I see. He dyed his hair blue for a charity event. If you look, if you look at him, he is anti woke. Uh, I don't know who this person is. I've never heard of them. I'll try to remember to go after the end of our chat uh, to check out who he is. Uh, I mean, in the abstract, I'm not someone who modulates who I talk. I mean, obviously, I can't talk to everybody who 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 might be interested in chatting with me. Not. Not by arrogance, not by being a diva. Just because, I mean, in a given week, I'll receive you know, fifty invitations, I don't know more than fifty invitations to appear on shows. I, I usually try to reply to everybody, even if to say no, I, I'm sorry, I can't do it, just because I, I don't have the necessary time. So, so it's seldom the case that I will refuse to speak to somebody because they're beneath me, or you know, it would look bad for my brand image. I've invited people on my show. Uh, you know, for example, staunch anti Islam critics that, you know, many people would have thought, oh, you shouldn't associate with these people. But I thought that they that we would have a fruitful conversation and I invited them. So unlike some of my so-called uh colleagues in the intellectual space, I don't modulate whom I speak to as a as a function of brand image concerns. I don't give a shit. Uh now that doesn't mean that I'm willing to speak to anyone. Uh, I don't, I don't usually debate creationists, uh Because there's no, there is no conceivable way by which I'm ever going to be able to change your opinion about the matter, and therefore it's it's useless to engage in the debate. Uh, But yeah, I mean, if he's a, the other reason, the other thing I might say is sometimes I refute, and and I'm maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I'm honest to a fault. You know, people will write to me and say, "Oh, I started a a channel three days ago, and I'd love for you to come on the show." Well, it's hard for me to commit an hour to you when it's going to be viewed by six people. I have to maximize. So, if I'm not maximizing the money I'm getting, then I better be maximizing the 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 amount of uh, you know uh, spread that the message is going to get, and so. F- I usually try to but I do accept often to go on people's shows that don't have much of an audience because I want to support what they're doing. They are being honey badges, not to supporting them. So it's hard for me to answer you specifically to these people, but these are some of the, the calculus that I use in deciding uh, you know which invitations to accept and so on. So thank you for that question. We've got Mark B. Recently lost forty pound on keto. Congratulations! Why doesn't anyone advise about the effects of sugar withdrawal? Three weeks for me, sleepless nights, powerful gradings, mood. Uh, yeah. Look, that this this actually came up yesterday in a con- in a conversation on Twitter that we had, where the person who had who had lost a lot of weight and he was kind enough to say that I was the one who motivated him to lose the weight when he saw my story on Joe Rogan. Uh said that he he despises i don't think he used the word despise but he dislikes when people offer sort of the definitive uh here's the best way to lose weight and I agree with him. I think that there are many many different ways that either might work or not for each individual. yes, there are certain universal guidelines that have been tried and tested, and they are more likely to be effective uh but it's for you to try uh what what has helped me a lot is having an outlet for the cravings that are that fit the caloric profile that I'm that I'm that I'm trying to maintain right so I don't think it's a good idea when people starve themselves uh so yes I I think that there are some great values to intermittent fasting I get that and I understand it and and you know I've done it a bit and it works well and so on but over the long haul you want a program that is sustainable that 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 makes sense that's right so for example being strictly keto i think over the long haul might be a difficult thing because we are omnivores Uh, we have evolved to seek a variety of food sources so for example just like when vegans say get rid of animal proteins and i argued that evolutionarily speaking it makes no sense that we we should seek such a diet being strictly keto going after you know fatty foods and high-fat high, high fat animal protein and so on. Like, for example, as you guys know, my good friend Jordan Peterson does. That works well for him, great. But despite the fact that I absolutely love fatty steaks, I don't think I could only eat that. I, I need a bit more variety. That's why, by the way, the Mediterranean diet or the Lebanese diet really works well for me, uh, precisely because here's a little piece of fish Here's a little bit of berries. Here's a little bit of nuts. As long as I stay within my caloric threshold, I drop weight like a monster. So, so I can't I can't speak more to your case, but congratulations on losing weight. Please stay vigilant. It takes very little for the weight to come back. It's a perpetual struggle. Uh, you know, the minute that I go three four days without watching what I'm eating, I already start feeling bloated. I mean, not that I've put on so much weight. But like, you know, I already feel, oh, I'm going down the wrong track. Listen to that. Be vigilant. Uh, very few people live to be 100 when they are overweight. There are a lot of benefits to being thin. And so power to you for having lost the weight. Cheers. All right. Next. What do we got? We got, oh, I just missed someone. Hold on a second, guys. Did I? Oh, yeah. Okay. We got Fursuj. Is that? for use? Furious Jay, in your estimation, thank you for coming back. In your esti- I think third time you're back. I, I appreciate that. In your estimation, who was the Canadian prime minister that best embodied values of freedom and liberty, and who commands your respect to this day? It has to be a Canadian guy. Uh, With, I mean, within my lifetime or historically, historically, I don't necessarily. I mean, I I know many of the historical prime ministers, but I don't necessarily know all of the intricacies of their various policies to be able to to intelligently say, oh, I admire him more than him and so on. So I'll, I'll refrain from doing that. Are there any uh, current politicians that command my respect? Well, this might surprise you, uh, or maybe not. Uh, Maxime Bernier, many of the substantive positions that he takes, I'm in full agreement with him. I think the problem with Maxime is, uh, is that his language delivery, even though, I mean, he he certainly is functional in English. Uh, he's got a very, very... I, I mean, I hate to be saying this because you'd like to think that politicians are not picked on such, uh, quote, trivial cues, but they are, right? People choose all things equal, a taller candidate than a shorter candidate. People prefer a guy that has a certain cadence to his voice. Yesterday, we were talking on Twitter spaces about... Uh, Kennedy and throwing his his uh, hat in the race. And people asked me, what do I think of him? And I said, look, I think his his speech issue and his his voice signature can be problematic to a lot of people. As much as we like to think that, no, we should only use objective metrics of their policies, people don't do that. If anything, they do the exact opposite of that. So in the case of Maxime Bernier, I'm, I'm very uh, supportive of... of a great majority of his positions. So in that sense, from a policy perspective, uh he does command my respect. Uh, whether I think he will ever be prime minister, uh, once he founded his new party and he was no longer part of the, the bullshit machinery, it became that much more difficult. So that's the best answer I can offer you. Uh, all right, Uh Who else we got here? Who else we got? I think we're almost done, which... Maybe it's a good thing we're heading towards two and a half hours. We've got Steven, Steve C thirty. Do we have anybody else? No. How about we we consider Steve? Oh no! And then we have AD. Oh, we've got my. Oh, we got a whole bunch more. Okay. How about we do the following four that are left, and then if you want, we can wrap it up. Although I love this, I'm having fun. You uh, so Steve C thirty. You have said the key to happiness is a loving partner. Apologies if I'm misquoting you. What's your thoughts on people who choose to remain single or are just happy to wait and see the if it happens, it happens mentality? Well, I I didn't specifically say a loving partner, although, yes, that, I mean, you're unlikely to be happy if your partner is, is not a loving one. Uh, I was simply saying that a a key predictor of you being happy in your life is if you find the right partner, whatever that entails. And, and in the book, I, I get into all the details. Uh, look, I, I have a brother who never married, uh, he, the Southern California brother. He's never been interested in getting married. He's never been interested in founding a family. I think that one of the beautiful things of life is that there is a great heterogeneity of possible ways to live life. So there isn't a singular way. Although, of course, we are a sexually reproducing species, it makes perfect evolutionary sense that we want to engage in coupling. Uh, Of course, we both have the desire to engage in long-term bonding, coupling, and also to stray for evolutionary reasons. That's the perennial tension. In one of the chapters in my forthcoming book, I talk about that that tension. When I talk about variety-seeking, including sexual variety-seeking, it could be problematic to navigate when you are in a monogamous marriage, uh, but yeah, I think there are uh, completely valid reasons why some people might say, "Look, I, I'm just not built for marriage. I, I don't want to come home to the same person every day. I don't want to have to sit and talk to that person." I, I've heard all those stories before. Hey, live and let live. So I don't. I, I don't have. I don't. There. I don't pass judgment. I mean there are people who say, "Hey, I want to get married, but I don't want to have children." So let's take it to your point. Why don't they want to have children? Well, that's the richness of life. But you said if it happens, it happens. Yeah, fine. Uh many I mean I receive tons of emails from people precisely and one of the reasons why I decided to write this book is because I thought that a lot of people might, you know, enjoy, you know, having my prescriptions about how to live life. You know, in a in a singular compendium in a book, and and that's one of the reasons why I decided to write the book. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, the way I met my wife, uh, something that I discuss in the book, was completely serendipitous. Uh, it was I wasn't it wasn't that I was uh, you know going to a matchmaker. I I mean I was thirty five when we got together, so I, I, it wasn't that I you know I was a, a tw- you know eighteen years old. Uh, So, yes, I was concerned that, you know, it'll be good to hopefully find my life partner soon so we can found a family. But, yeah, I also did what you're saying there, which is, you know, live and let live, and and it will hopefully happen. So, you know, but all that I'm arguing in the book is that uh, there are ways by which you can try to secure a greater probability of you finding the right match. So, again, I don't... I'm not. I don't have the hubris to tell you. Read my book, and I guarantee you steps A, B, C. You will be happier. What I can tell you is, if you do all of these things, if you are mindful of all of these traps and minefields, I'm going to offer you a prescription to increase the likelihood of your happiness. So that that's all I can say. Thank you very much for that question and for your donation. Uh, moving on, we've got Iofer Sheffield. Forgive me, Godfather, for I have sinned. You are my second most favorite Canadian Jewish atheist after Gary Lee Weinrib. Who the hell? Oh, Geddy Lee is that? Is that the lead singer of Rush? Is that? Am I getting this right? Oh, because I'm seeing a guitar in the thing. Well, first, yes, I am offended that you would think that there is someone that you that has monopolized your affections more than me. That can't be right. You are violating a, a law of nature. Uh how about this? I'm like shitload better looking than he is. Can I say that? Would that be offensive or can we all agree? Look at the look at the full lips. Look at the green eyes. Look at the hair. Come on. So fine. You love him more. I'm better looking. I've probably I probably have the hotter wife. It all evens out. Yin yang. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yoffer. I think you were here last time because I remember your last name, Sheffield. I might have even said something about Sheffield United and Sheffield Wednesday, which are two uh, soccer teams out of England. Mike Stoke, for your book fund. Aren't you lovely? Thank you so much. Just that. Look at that. Simple and easy. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. A.D. Uh, W.Y.E. Uh, Williams et al. 2019 estimates that self-control is 60% heritable. Are there implications for group level estimates of heritability and how would that be studied? Thank you. Whoa. Uh, I don't know that study in question, so I don't know. Uh, In general, personality traits of which you know, self-control would be one. So self-control, for example, is also linked to things like immediate versus delayed gratification, right? Because if you score higher on delayed gratification, that means you're likely to, all other things equal, have more self-control. I'm going to control so that I can do later. I'm going to save my money today so that I could have more for a rainy day. So that those sets of personality traits are actually quite important in consumer psychology and consumer behavior, uh, you know, the fields that I, you know, I study, uh, on average, the range for the heritability of personality traits ranges from about 30 to 80%, depending on the trait. So your 60% seems to make sense to me in that it's almost smack in the middle. So that makes sense. Uh, are there implications for group level estimates of heritability? I'm, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by that. Do you mean group level at the at the race level, at the population level, in the statistical sense, at the ethnic I don't know what you mean. so I can't I'm not sure what you want me to answer there. Uh, but generally speaking, maybe what you're saying is, can we expect that there would be group level differences on self-control? across different groups that are heritable and the answer conceptually is yes Uh, i mean in a sense that's what behavioral ecologists study right they study differences between groups as adaptive responses to different ecosystems and so i think maybe your question fits within that boy i'm getting hungry okay do we have anybody else No, we don't. Did I cover everybody? I think I did. Did I? Let me just check this. Uh, Yes, I think I covered everybody. Let me me call it quits before some other generous person comes in with a super chat donation. Hey, guys, this is fantastic. By the way, if you missed any part of this, what I end up doing after is I up... I mean, this will be... It's being live streamed. Then it will become permanently on my YouTube channel. And I also posted later on the podcast. So if you're going for a jog and you want to hear the whole thing again, uh, you know, please feel free to do so. Remember, please subscribe to the channel. Please subscribe to my podcast. Spread the word. Donate if you can. And for now, please, most importantly, head off to Amazon, pre-order The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life, Guys, you're unbelievable. You're fantastic. You keep me on my toes. You ask me all kinds of challenging and difficult questions. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I'm just looking at what people are saying. Get some air, gad. Yes, I agree. I'm getting tired. Thank you, Dr. Saad. Thank you for coming. Uh, look, you guys can be anywhere in the world you decided to be here. I am forever grateful that you made that choice. Uh, I will let you know well ahead of time, hopefully, the next time that I have a live stream. Thank you so much for coming. Take care, guys. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers.